0: Special Agent Jim DiOrio, thank you for uh, coming here. It's an honor to have you. It's I- I've my pleasure, watched, man. I've watched all your episodes with Julian. You have a fascinating story. He and you and him together are just like magic. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate it, man. And It's an honor to be here. I listen to your stuff, and I think it's
1: absolutely incredible and inspiring
0: for me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, For people out there who don't know, give me a brief background on your history of the FBI and even before that. Yeah, sure. Uh, son of a public servant. So my dad was a
1: fireman in Newark, New Jersey, great dude, um, later became an arson investigator, and that's where I think I picked up some of my interrogation techniques. I was the youngest of three kids, and um, basically dad said, hey, uh, I don't have a lot of money for college, so you're going to have to figure something out. So I became a decent baseball player, got some offers, Seton Hall University, was signed to play there, and then West Point came calling. And um, my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, answered the phone and took a message from the West Point baseball coach and only relayed to my dad, hey, the Army called. So that was the message. And I was 17, so my dad's like, hey, look, I did that. You're not doing that. Then we realized it was West Point. Went for a visit, fell in love with it, and then went to West Point and uh, had a great four years there. Met some unbelievable buddies who I'm still tight with today. Um, Played ball there, studied there, went to the Army. Um became a, a combat arms officer and then later an Intel officer, uh serving overseas on several different deployments, um, mostly intel work, which was fascinating to me. Um, I knew that was my niche at that point, and then continued on in the role of an FBI agent where um was recruited by both sides. So I was recruited by the agency, recruited by the Bureau. Um I looked at both. I had a young family, and I realized that probably the Bureau was gonna be the better spot for me to be around. And as it turned out, the irony of the whole thing is I spent probably more time overseas with the Bureau than I ever would have spent with, with the agency, um, based on kind of my, I don't want to call it a pigeonhole kind of thing, but when you become, um, a respected interrogator, they're going to send you to the places where interrogations need to happen, especially Mm -hmm. after nine 11. So I spent the better part of 20, uh, in the Bureau loved it again, great friends, great contacts and a, a a kind of a Hollywood type career. I just loved it. And when it was time, I knew, um, got out, thought about going to work for some people, um, you know, kind of exclusively and then said, why the hell should I do that when I can work for a lot of different people and continue the impact. And so that's kind of where I'm at today is continuing the impact through a small security consulting firm and, um, married uh, second marriage, first marriage, still good friends with her. Uh, two kids just didn't work out because of the way things were going in my career. Um, and it, three step kids who I love, and I had my first grandchild on April the first. Oh, so, congratulations! So, so big Sal is here, nice Irish. Big kid. Sal, big Sal is the awesome. man. So um, so that's
0: kind of as I sit here in front of you, that's uh, where I'm at, and life is good. In your, in the simplest terms possible. Could you simplify what it, the main objective of the of the FBI is? So, if you look at our credentials, it's
1: going to read that we collect evidence in cases that are criminal in nature in the domestic United States. Right. That's that's how it's going to look. That being said, we are an agency based on developing intelligence, and the better intelligence that you can go ahead and develop, the more cases you're, you're able to clear, quote unquote. Um, that's really what the Bureau does. It's being able to knock on doors and get people to tell you their wildest secret, something they never wanted anyone to know. We all have that thing. We all hold it close. Some of us are embarrassed about it. Some of us are giddy about our secret, right? But at the end of the day, I think that's what it comes down to, getting up you know, every day, having a passion to make an impact um, for the government, but in turn mostly for the people that I serve, and I've always been a servant leader, and that's been kind of my approach. It's not its not the common approach in the Bureau, um, as we're seeing these days, and I know we'll talk about that later. Um, you need to learn the job. You need to learn how to be an investigator. You need to learn how to establish yourself within the intelligence community, how to garner that
0: information and then use it for the good. For the it, greater good. It seems like there there's a very, very blurry line, especially the way you just described it, between the CIA and the FBI. Can you can you explain the differences and the similarities? They are the most talented intel collectors in the world.
1: Um, and pre-9-11, which was a huge wake-up call for the intelligence community, it was a huge wake-up call for all of us, you know, as American citizens, but... We realized that we weren't communicating together or working, kind of dovetailing and collaborating on casework. We were kind of competing. And the result is pretty clear. The result is 9-11. And after that, we became better at Collaborating, but more so looking at individuals as individuals, as opposed to, well, the agency is that way, you know, or the FBI, the bureau is that way. We became, hey, Jim and Joe are working really well together. They serve for competing agencies, not the truth. And they're able to collaborate with other federal agencies, the IRS, you know, ICE at the time, the newly formed, you know, Department of Homeland Security. So, um, th- I'd say the blurry line is really simply domestic versus international and their ability to long-term develop hearts and minds overseas where we are more responsible for the crime pop- problems in our areas. And you're seeing results now with the inability for local, local law enforcement and a lot of times has their hands tied. The Bureau has become an agency of those just trying to get to the top without learning the job. My opinion, but I think there's many that would agree with me. Uh, even current FBI agents would agree, would agree. And most of us who are retired can't believe, um, you know, some of the decisions that are being made or not being made at the at the top. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the political appointments that go hand in hand together with the Bureau is a 10-year appointment. CIA is a 10-year appointment, right? It's supposed to be apolitical, but they're political appointments. And they don't come from within the ranks. I can't remember, the last FBI director that came from the ranks is Louis Free, who served in the mid, actually the early to to late 90s. The greatest director in the history of the FBI, in my opinion. Really? Unbelievable. Just a people person. He was a federal prosecutor. He was an FBI agent before that, and then rose through the ranks as an FBI agent to become the director. Um, Just inspiring, just by being around the man. You understood that he had your back, but he also understood the way the job was supposed to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. He stayed in his lane, effectively,
1: effectively stayed in his lane.
0: And I think one of the problems now, correct me if I'm wrong, is it seems like every time there's a new president, there's a new head of the FBI and the CIA. Very true. How, how why does that happen? Well, I mean, sometimes
1: it's the decision of that director to step down uh, based on, hey, look, I've done my time with. There, there's there's very few crossovers from presidencies. Um, you have to go back to Hoover. I think crossed eight presidents wow. in the beginning. Well we know his problems, you know, along the way. So, um, laughable, but you know, it was his baby, right? He started it from day one as a 29 year old man. Um, but I think that I think the issue is a lot of times there's an agenda based on whoever the attorney general or the director of the national security agency has in that white house and they effectively uh, target different areas of the world or they effectively target different crime problems and based on that they bring the person in that they think can best develop those programs and a lot of times like i said it doesn't work out because they're political appointees they have no back it takes two or three years for them to establish themselves among the rank and file Mm. by the time they do that they're kind of winding down in a presidency. They've been appointed. So now they have to start thinking about, well, if this
0: guy gets reelected, and it does happen. They do think that way. Look at Jim Comey. The man's a disaster. The pre, Even the presidency is like a – it's a transient position. It usually is every four years is a new president. In the best case scenario, it's eight years. So it seems like – and then if – you're automatically going to tie the head of the CIA and the head of the FBI to the president. That means these people are changing all the time. Meanwhile, you have people, you know, congressmen and senators that can stay in office for forever, ever. Yeah. Um, it seems almost counterintuitive to getting anything done in the country.
1: It's a great point. And I always look at continuity of operations, right? It's something that's preached in the military. It's even preached nowadays in corporate America, you know, and, um, We don't do a great job, when I say we, I mean the Bureau, and I'm sure the agency has similar concerns, as does probably all other federal law enforcement or federal intelligence organizations. We don't do a great job kind of looking the one, the three, the five, the ten-year plan of a director. We just kind of come in and we react at first. This is I'm talking from a director's perspective, from what I've seen. Hmm. They react to issues that are being brought up to them through the ranks. And remember, the people who are achieving rank are the people that most likely didn't learn the job, but they've always had the aspiration to, to go forward, to go up. Right, that's right. a problem. So the rank and file that you... That's human nature. It's human nature. And and the Bureau, the rank and file, there's no issue with the rank and file. I mean, onesies and twosies here and there, like every other organization, there's no issue. They're going to do their job. I mean, you know, I, I always call it the two-thirds rule. I mean, there's going to be two, two guys or girls that really do the job, and then one guy that's just going to sit around and say, look at my gun and badge. Mm. But we accept that. We accept that. That's part of the way it is. My point is, um, I think there's not enough time placed on this rank and file agent by the director to say what does that person need. Not all this bureaucracy and trying to please different agendas on the House or on the Hill or in the House or what the president wants or what the attorney general wants. Let let's let's mold the bureau into what it's supposed to be, establish and collect evidence for crimes against the United States of America. That's it. No political agenda. We shouldn't be out there preaching prosecution or preaching non-prosecution as the Mm. director of the Bureau, as Mm. we saw clearly in the Clinton case, in the Hillary Clinton case. Right. The summer of 2015. You know, I mean, Jim Comey, disastrous. And we've never really... We've never taken a step forward since that, and I. We can talk about some solutions that I think, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, it's just the Oreo, you know, but I. I feel strongly about some of these solutions, and who knows? Maybe down the
0: line one day I'll get a chance to 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 put those into play. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a conflict between getting results, either politically or trying to hit milestones with, whether it be climbing the ranks or or budget hitting a getting approved for budgets. Similar to how cops have quotas to get tickets, it seems like there's a conflict between actually trying to serve justice and just get results, as in, as if like to service your bottom line rather than to provide justice or to get justice to the people that deserve it. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. And I think a lot of it has to do with
1: the changing agenda of the Bureau, which is very no longer a responsive agenda. It's a reactive agenda. Okay, all of a sudden, we healthcare is the issue this week or this year, and you're going to get mm-hmm. preached at by every FBI supervisor. We need to make some more healthcare cases, regardless of whether or not there's a need. That's the focus of this new attorney general, this new U.S. attorney that just was appointed by the president in the district of New Jersey. Or, hey, you know what? This week it's going to be uh, mortgage fraud. So we got to get cranking on mortgage fraud. Hey, you know what? If we do well on mortgage fraud, there's money that's coming in for new cars and for new uh, travel and to be able to go to seminars. That should not be driving the, the FBI. What should be driving the FBI is a view of your area. And there's 56 field offices in the United States. Okay. And then there's another 20-plus what we call legats, legal attachés in different countries. By the way, established by Louis Frey, the greatest thing that ever happened to the Bureau. Because it gave us the opportunity to talk hand-in-hand hand with the CIA mm. every day. Right. And, and those ambassadorships that are important hmm. to how we go about doing our business and how we go about making cases. So if you think about those 56, each of those 56 field offices is represented by a United States attorney who's an appointed official. And that person has an agenda to move forward. Look at Mr. Christie. Look at Chris Christie. He, was the, US Chris Christie? Att- he was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey. There was never there was never a goal of just being a great U.S. attorney and looking at everything that around him and looking at the crime problems. He focused on political or public corruption, what we call public corruption, Mm -hmm. because he knew if he could make a stance on public corruption, it would be a platform that would launch him to the governorship. And ultimately, he thought he was going to be the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And then we saw him kind of cowering behind Donald Trump on the stage when he didn't get any appointment. And he claims that it has to do with Jared Kushner hating him, and because he went after Kushners. he didn't do shit. We're the ones that went after the Kushner's. We're the ones that went after Torricelli. We're the ones that went after every political, you know, corrupt, corruptly political figure in New Jersey. Not him. Hmm. He just stood there and had results based on his rise to the top. So that in itself is an issue. If you think about, hey, you've got a, a politically motivated U.S. attorney, you've got some politically motivated. People at the top of the bureau—it's a bad combination. Mm. Could be devastating, and we're seeing
0: results of that. What do you think is going on with the whole Trump th- raid? How did this all happen? And how how do you think it's real that the White House had no idea, and then Biden had no idea? Is that possible? How, how close is Biden, is the president, to making calls like this? Well, I think you got to look at this president, but somebody knew.
1: Right. So I'm just not sure if this guy has the mental capacity to, to digest and analyze. Mm-hmm. Um, But, yeah, somebody there knows. Th- there's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, To have to have a sitting attorney general bring this to a federal judge and say we have enough for a search warrant. We have probable cause that establishes this crime, which, again, we'll never see that affidavit, which is what we need to see in order to establish what the charges were potentially going to be. We're going to see this, here's the inventory of what they took or what they didn't find, whatever. Now, in order to do that, you have to convince a federal judge that, in fact, you tried everything else in your power in order to get these documents that they needed. And I'm very cynical about the fact that if you're a good agent, if you're, you're an agent who can walk in and say, Hey, look, you know, and th- this is the way I would approach it. Look, let me tell you something. I've got this subpoena forthwith, which means I can't leave here today without these 11 documents. And I have a family, my kids playing literally, I know, I know how to kind of work it and get the feeling, put the finger on the pulse of that attorney that's representing the Trump family and say, are, are we going to get these today? Or, or do they, are they, are they there? Am I barking up the wrong tree? Didn't we ask for these before? I just want to know because I don't want to waste a lot of time. That's the way to do it. Mm. But the fact of the matter is they wanted to make a spectacle. When I say they, I'm not sure which side it was. You know, I've, I've. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm, it could, you can go either way on this, right? You can think about, um, midterms are coming up. Democrats are obviously obviously trying to divert <clears throat> attention to the failures over the course of the last year and a half or whatever it is. So they're going to try to dirty this guy up so that he never establishes himself again as a potential Republican candidate. One way to look at it. Definitely a, a logical thought process and something that most Americans probably are thinking that way. Here's my thought. What if you're the Kushners and Ivanka Trump? What if you're that family and you say to yourself two things? First off, we're losing a little ground here. You know, he's he's kind of not, doesn't have a platform to pop off. Um, he's not getting, uh, you know, views either way as being the right guy, the wrong guy, or the party guy, right? What if we push this on him and allow him to, in fact, accept those rushing back to his side? Mm. This is my conspiracy theory, but mm. i got to believe it. You know where Kushner and his wife were that night that this thing was served? No. Eating dinner... In Minneapolis, at a quiet restaurant by themselves, somebody needed to talk about Mir lago, right? Somebody needed to talk about the layout of the house. You cannot get a search warrant without explaining explicitly to that federal judge in writing and in person, because there's a briefing that goes on with this. Here's what the house looks like. Now it's like like 108 rooms or something crazy. Right? You gotta yeah, know. Insane. You gotta know exactly. Where this stuff is, what the house looks like, what the veneer is, what the paint is, what the stucco walls look like—you have to know that. Who the hell, else, besides Secret Service, who the hell else is going to know? Family members. My conspiracy theory: Secret Service never do that. They would so you never think do that. There's a rat on the inside. I do, but I think it's a it's a it's a pointed rat. And we're you know, it's somebody that made a decision, a conscious decision. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. There was no talking to him. The daughter would go at him. Ivanka would go at him about keeping his mouth shut, stopping the tweets. Just settle down, relax. Nope, he knows better. Right. And, and I'm not a, I'm not either way. I'm not a supporter. I'm not a hater of Donald Trump. You know, I think we need to find the right mix for a president who's going to take us to the next, through the next 10 years. I worry about my grandson, Mm. what it's going to look like. But I think they figured out a way to kind of do both, quiet him down. And at the same time, give him a platform to discuss going forward. That look at this—they found nothing. I'm not charged. They tried with the January 6th. They tried with the impeachment. Right. They tried with this search warrant, and they can't get me. It's almost—you it, know—it's endearing. It's endearing to the party and the people who are in the middle.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It, it makes it almost makes his base just ju- run to his side even more. It, it seems like it helps him more. And I think, if anything, that it's just gonna solidify any decision if he was ever on the fence to run for president again i totally agree and and that's listen it's out there and i probably have
1: you know buddies in the bureau that are like what the hell's the matter with you but they're thinking it they're Mm. thinking it
0: because they know what it takes to get that warrant and in his statement i think he said that they the fbi demanded that he turn off his security cameras get his attorneys couldn't be there to witness it what else? There was a bunch of th- crazy thing. Why would they ask to turn off the security cameras? And then they cracked the safe. And there was nothing in the safe except his passports, which they took. Which they took. You know, what you could have asked to be turned over and reviewed and have a judge look at why are we
1: asking? Why are we taking these passports? Why are we preventing this man from traveling overseas? What is mm. the reason? And now he's suing the DOJ, right? And he should. You know, he should. That's ridiculous. We didn't take passports from some people that were known criminals. We left them with their passports. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it makes no sense to me. Um, you, you know, there there's a lot about this that just reeks of, you know,
0: worst case scenario, corruption, uh, best case scenario, or mm-hmm. judgment. So he's talking about some sort of watchdog or something that he wants to get implemented. Some somebody that sort of like watches it. I don't understand any of this. I'm sure Julian would know what it means. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he wants to have some sort of person in place to monitor whatever whatever they have at the DOJ or whatever kind of evidence or whatever the documents are to make sure that they don't release it to the public or to make sure only the right things are released to the public but he I think he's suing for this specific reason
1: Yeah and I, I think that's probably the right move because you're not sure who's you, you, anything that doesn't go hand in hand with um, I shouldn't say hand in hand but anything that's questionable that can question that can that can be an issue for national security can be an issue for his own personal security can be an issue for anybody within his organization needs to be closely monitored closely scrutinized and then redacted if necessary mm-hmm. i mean right. we do it in the military you know right. we do it in the military if we're on a special uh, i mean jack carr is a perfect example seal team six guy uh, wrote a bunch of books if you listen to his books it's funny you're listening to them it's and they're great books and i love it Reading it, you don't get the true thing. But if you're listening to the book, every other, like, in a paragraph, maybe every 10 pages, and there they were in, redact it. And the guy Mm. just says, redact it. So because, you know, the Navy reviewed it and said, no, you can't share this stuff. But it's kind of a similar deal where you – and I think that's what he's calling for. Hey, let's make sure we're not redacting stuff that's going to be meaningful to the actual explanation of why they tried to get this search warrant and why it failed. So it's almost like an inspector general role, which – I'm a full proponent of an IG in any organization because I think it's somebody that doesn't have sides that's independent, you know, outside even independent prosecutors are not independent. Let's face it. They're brought in as a, as a hired gun, Mm. you know? So, but if you have a true inspector general, it's going to come in, look at the problems, look at the problems with this case, look at the problems with other cases, look at the problems with a program that national security or the FBI is running and say, look, here are the four or five things you need to get right. You're not doing it right. And I'm being as objective as I can with you. Stop being, you know, do this the right way, get it done. I think that's what he's kind of calling for, and and you're always confused with any messaging that he brings he puts out. And I think always. it's it's
0: also ex- almost comical that the FBI can raid Mar-a-Lago, but no one's saying anything about raiding anybody to get G- Ghislaine Maxwell's list. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? How powerful would that list be? Are you kidding me? Right. Like, I mean, that could how... expose
1: everyone that's anyone. Yeah. You know, that's I insane. mean, yeah. And I, I mean, the fact that she, the fact that they hammered her, and I know that for a fact, hammered her, leading into her ultimate plea and her ultimate, you know, sentencing, um, and she never provided that information, that's, that's some scary stuff. That's some scary stuff. But never, never did we try to say, we need to get this stuff. It needs to be there. Never. I can tell you that for a fact. They never pursued that. They thought they could flip her. They had confidence in themselves
0: to be able to say, oh, we're going to get her to tell us what she needs. No,
1: she's not. She's a hardened person.
0: Do you think she there's somebody the best? above that, somebody that, that is above the FBI or the CIA that's saying, like, don't press on it. Just leave it alone. We have a plan. Like, it? could, it, could somebody come in and sort of, like, take the reins away from? I do believe that. Really? I do believe and that. And who, what kind of person would that be? Who would be the one that would do something like that? So
1: so it's a mix between DOJ
0: proper, so your attorney generals
1: and your, you know, U.S. attorneys. And it's a mix between them and the hierarchy of the Bureau for the good of the country, for the good of national security. Mm-hmm. Listen, like, like the big thing, one example of it is this. We are not allowed, and this is the other thing that's crazy too. We are not allowed... Up to I think six months prior to any election, are we allowed to interview or even, um, you know, serve a subpoena on a political campaign, a political candidate, right. a party going into an election? Right? Period. Right. <clears throat> Fact of the matter is they they borderline this to the day, serving the search warrant to the day.
0: Yeah, that's pretty funny. Somebody's wild. thinking about that. that Somebody's
1: looking at a calendar and saying, Well, we can't do it on that day. So we have to do it this day, this day, this day. You know? That's sinister shit. That's not just following the evidence. I'm not following the evidence on that. I'm making a statement. I'm just making some type of statement. If I'm following the evidence, you know, many times I would go or I'd bring my guys to go to a U.S. 30 and say, hey, we want to do this. We're really excited. Look what we found. Look at this evidence. We interviewed this guy. We we got this wiretap. We got the, hey, we want to go. And then they reminded me, hey, we're 45 days out from the, oh, damn, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't saying like, hey, oh, we got to get this in by September 1st. Hurry up. Right. Never. It was always follow the evidence. That's what we're missing. We're missing that factor. And somebody's pushing those buttons. At the top. How much, what year was it when you first entered the FBI? So it was a, I had kind of a hybrid situation. So I was crossover between the military and the FBI. Okay. Back in the early nineties, um, working a, a very specific undercover case up in Providence, Rhode Island. So, um, kind of, I would say became an effective investigator really working on stuff in 98 ish
0: is when I really started investigating cases. I'm curious to how much of an influence and how much technology and social media has changed the FBI since the early '90s yeah, to, I mean, to today. Well, I can tell you, it's probably our greatest investigative tool, and I'm probably giving up
1: information to to bad guys who are like, "Shit, I'm gonna head and uh, erase my my profile." But honestly, it's people don't care, right? Because people are exposing or people are. Trying to get the acknowledgement from others and, and the validation by saying, "Look at my life, look mm-hmm. how wonderful my life." And it's proven, right? right? You see, mental health issues are yeah. based on social media. Well, it's just, so so they can't help themselves from posting associations. Hey, I'm you know here's my friends. I can, it's one of the greatest open source tools in the history of the world because I can go in and figure out that you and you and me and you world can we're all connected. Why are we connected? Well, here's another one's connected. You can comment on something. Oh my God, there he is. Mm. I use that to today. I use it today. It's the greatest thing ever, right? So it's caused a couple of different things. First off, it's caused laziness from what I said, getting up and knocking on doors. That's the key to making a case. It's not reviewing social media. Oh, that's the way to verify, to corroborate a fact based on the fact, oh, you know what? Yeah, he was at that house. Look, he is. Here's a picture of him with a car, whatever, you know? So I think it's changed it in the way it's made this generation of FBI agents less likely to go out and confront Hmm. And confront with evidence. Confront with facts. First thing I'm going to do, if I'm going to go out and interview you, I'm going to know everything about you. Every question I ask you, I'm going to know the answer to. Because at the end of that time, I'm going to be able to go ahead and put a a meter on you and say, yeah, pretty much he's 70% there. We got it. Or I'm going to say, this this person has not told me a single thing that's truthful. Mm. And I'm going to know that. And the next time we meet, I'm going to throw one or two of those things out at you. The basis of interrogation is knowing what the person's going to say.
0: Now you're explaining, you're kind of talking about the 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 basics of social media like yeah. looking at somebody's profile or their right. pictures or their comments. Right. But how much f- more access does the FBI or the CIA get behind the curtain like going going down to the nitty-gritty of tracking location? That's something that everybody worries about. We always joke about that like, "Oh, we can't talk, the FBI's listening." Or there's always there's memes about talking to your friends about shit and then the FBI just jumps into your text. But how much access do they have, whether it be into social media or into tech companies like Apple, to get behind the curtain? So, two different
1: areas, right? So, if you look at Apple, Apple is so resistant to... And it's not that they're anti-law enforcement, but they're so resistant to providing information without court orders. And even at that, it's, it's difficult to get information. You look at the San Bernardino shootings, right? We tried... Critical times. You were involved with that, right? Critical times. I was definitely involved. Yep, definitely spent time consulting on that as an agent. So, um, if you think about that, to us, to us as the law enforcement community, uh, community, we're like, what the fuck, you know, you got to help us out. This is a terrorism act and, and that's going on. It's happening, right? But to them, it's a different story. It's freedom, right? It's 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 the ability to to have that security blanket, the ability to be protected, you know, ability to. Be protected by the Constitution that it lies on. And I get that, right? So that's one side. So it's still very resistant. Apple is still very resistant. Now, that being said, there's guys in this world, there's talent in this world that could do whatever the fuck they want to do, whenever they want to do it. You're talking about people outside of the agencies? And that's why we we have a hell of a time keeping our cyber specialists in the Bureau. Mm -hmm. So we mostly, well, we'll use some bad guys to do it. How long can they last? They have a shelf life, right? Six months before they go bad again. But the good guys, the guys who have learned it and just get it, we can only pay them $150,000 a year. Right. That's, a, that's a month. That's a month at different companies. So they're gone. There's no way to attract that. Wow. Right. So that's, that skill is there. It's there. And I've seen it work and I've been fortunate enough to be on the right side of it working to be able to help people and impact people's lives as a civilian. Right. Go, go to the social media side. It's simple, man. I mean, it is not a difficult act to be able to get deep and down and dirty.
0: There's nothing
1: that's not available.
0: Now, when you say it's easier to use bad guys because they're more proficient or they're better at what they do because they make a lot more money, what kind of tactics do you use to convince the bad guys to work for you? Because obviously they, they know that you know that they're bad guys. Leverage. It's it's the same. It's, it's like any other crime. It's having leverage.
1: It's being able to say. There, there's not a lot of bad guys and girls out there that are going to come and say, hey, I'm a true patriot. I want to help. What they're going to do is say, oh, my God, I'm facing 20 years in jail. I'll help. Mm. How long do I have to help? It's always a negotiation. You want to choke them. But at the end of it, it's negotiation. Hey, listen, I'll help you with, you know, For six months, but we just stop looking at my stuff.
0: That's so that's so crazy. We just
1: stop looking at my stuff. Many plea deals are made based on that. Listen, we have this, 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 and this, but we kind of are starting to look here. What do you think? Well, if I help you, we stop looking there, and then you know we don't say it up front. But talk to the U.S. attorney and say, hey, we got a good. This is a good deal. We're going to stop a lot of bad here, and we're going to know we still know about the other stuff, so we keep it in the back pocket. So, it's the same thing with a bad guy, with a cyber guy. Hey, listen, we need help. We're getting destroyed by the Russians. We're getting destroyed by Pakistan. We're getting destroyed by the Chinese. You, are you able to help us? Yeah, but, you know, and they play it like, you know, well, yeah, well, we know about these three things. And they probably got 10 more that we don't know about, mm-hmm. but we get to know about. And so we make a deal. Wow. We make a deal. And
0: that's the way it works. That's the way of the world. That's so crazy. It's crazy. So, when it comes to just on social media companies aside, how much influence – we talked about this before we started, but um, Zuckerberg was just talking about how the FBI basically came to them and said that there's some Russian propaganda going on with the Hunter Biden – this was during the election with, between Biden and Trump – with the Hunter Biden laptop, we need you to suppress the story about the Hunter Biden laptop, and they did – Twitter completely suppressed it. I think there was New York Post was the publication that got it completely. Yeah, yeah that author, that, that woman who, who wrote the book, yeah. to Laptop from Hell or whatever it was. Right. Yep. Yep. So how much how much influence do agencies like the CIA or the FBI have over these companies to make these kind of decisions? You know, I,
1: I have a hard time. When with, it comes to news. Yeah, I have a hard time with that, you know, thinking about that happening because I have I have some colleagues, some former life colleagues who I've talked to about that, who are in that industry. And I've said to them like, Hey, I really like to talk about ways to kind of incorporate your world with my world. And this was back when I was in the bureau. Can we do that? And they were very reluctant to have those conversations, extremely reluctant. So when I hear that, in fact, you know, someone from Facebook or meta or whatever it's called these days, or somebody from Twitter or somebody from Instagram or TikTok, whatever, would come and get cooperation, you know, or actually talk to the bureau and say, "Yeah, we're we're good." I have a hell of a time kind of biting that off. Hmm. I, I just do. I had one interaction with Zuckerberg. I'll tell you a quick story. Oh, really? So we have a we have a, a group of, of guys and girls um, that are all service academy graduates. Each year, we take a trip and we kind of learn some good stuff. So back years ago, I was still in the bureau. Um, we went out to Seattle, and we got a chance to visit Google. We got a chance to visit Facebook, and and we had a great time. We met a lot of good people, and we got briefed by Zuckerberg himself. And everybody's telling me, Diorio, shut your mouth, shut your mouth, shut your mouth. I can't. I, I have a hell of a time to shut my mouth. So there was a there was this case, or, or not a case. I shouldn't say it, but there was always this urban legend in the city of Newark, New Jersey. In fact, where we believed that facebook provided or whether it be zuckerberg himself or facebook as an entity or some llc provided to the city of newark 100 million dollars for their education system at the time cory booker who's now a u.s senator from new jersey was the mayor of newark and there were always allegations anytime you have a a city like Newark or Trenton, there's always allegations of corruption, how that person got there, you know, what their background is, whether they were a gang member or who they were, always that. So you always, I always filtered that out, you know, along the way. But for some reason I just was tempted as hell during this meeting. And so he was like, any more questions? And everybody, I could feel the eyes on everybody. I said, Hey, any idea where that hundred million went that you gave to Cory Booker? And he just walked out.
0: (laughs) No fucking way. Holy and shit. And everybody
1: was like, you asshole. You know? And I'm like, well, and I caught some shit back in the bureau because I was still in the FBI. And they're like, hey, we heard about this thing because I, I think he might have called somebody that he knew in the bureau. And I got called in. You know, I got put on the carpet. And did you say it? And I've never been one to say, no, I didn't say it. Absolutely. And they said, like, that's pretty funny, but you're suspended. You know? So no, for two way. weeks. Yeah, I got two oh, weeks off. My yeah, yeah, two weeks off. So so i so why we're on that two weeks off I got another two weeks off you'll love this one so Christy was the U.S. attorney, you know heavy set dude, actually smart man heavy set dude political aspirations still out the ass. So we had made we had convicted uh, via trial a guy who was an authority like a utilities authority chairman who was basically using the utilities authority as a bartering system to get work done on his house his kids' house his relatives' houses and he couldn't understand that it was wrong so we went to trial and we convicted him. It happened to be Chris Christie's 100th conviction in public corruption. So it was a big deal, you know, so we're kind of hanging out and I go back to the US attorney's office and I'm talking and I'm telling jokes and all these guys and girls are, are very young Ivy league educated lawyers who um, loved hearing stories. And I'm telling story after story and joke and they're laughing at everything, laughing at everything. And I go, Hey, I got one more for you. And they're like, what's that? I said, how come the New York Yankees can't sign any more free agents? And they're like, baffled what do, what do you mean i said because that fat fuck chris christie took all the pinstripes for his last suit <laughs> and silence silence so i go he's right behind him, you know so i turn around and he's like hey get your stuff and get out of here so i'm like Phew. i tried to apologize he didn't want any part of it get my car I drive back long drive back to the office you know it's only about three miles but it felt like it was about two years oh get back there i walk up secretary's like hey the boss wants to see you. so i walk in who is the boss and, uh, it was this great, great dude. Uh, I, don't know, I don't want to say his name because he's still working. But okay. great dude. A great dude. We got along great. And I walk in, and he's like, say it. I'm like, you know I did. He's like, uh, funny as hell. But, um, you're suspended. <laughs> to this day, and I and I know Chris, so I see him from time to time. He'll just look at me and just shake his head. Like, he still hasn't gotten over it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still getting over
0: it. Oh, my God, man. I can just see it playing out. Do oh. you love? What do you think about how Julian posts those clips of you, of you talking, and he uses oh. Breaking Bad, the oh, guy from Breaking? I love Bad. it!
1: I love it! That's it. my have man, you, Hank. Have you
0: seen that show? Oh, I love that show! It's Such it's, a good it's a show, great show. And I want to get how, that. How, um, how true is that? How how true is that guy's life? How relatable is that? I mean, not the story. I'm not talking about the story. It's no. Like, no, it's not true. I know it's no. fictional. But yeah, like the the situations that that Hank was in with his family, and the you know dealing with the morals of family versus it's it's it's
1: not. You know, it, it's just not, it's just no one's, no one's bigger than the Bureau. Nobody's bigger than the DEA. You know, now there's guys that have tempted to do that. You look at the Strocks of the world who wrote about, I don't understand what the hell he's doing, but look at the Strocks of the world. You look at the McCabe's of the world. You look at the Comeys of the world. So they think they're bigger than the Bureau. They're not. So Hank is a guy who thinks he's bigger than the DEA, right? So he thinks he can just run ramshot around the world and look right. what happens to him. He winds up, you know, six feet under, right? Yeah. So, yeah. um, but I mean, the aggressiveness and the, um, I guess the high level of impact and the charged up way of doing the job, there's definitely people like that. Mm. There's definitely people that never turn it off and they're fabulous. They're fabulous. And they stay on this side of the line. There's no gray. You know, there's, there's limited gray areas here domestically with the Bureau. Mm. Limited. There's no, unless, unless we've had a couple agents go bad along the way. Right. But, overseas, you know, it becomes a little bit more, you're on presidential orders and you're part of a civil affairs team or you're part of a special operations team. There's stuff that happens. It just does. It just does. And it's necessary. Presidential orders is is a powerful piece. You report to one person, president, Mm -hmm. you know, that's it. So missions are based on that. And they're very, very specific, very, very organized and, you know, very objective oriented. So a guy like Hank, you know, I mean... It's a great character. Amazing uh, I mean, character. I love it. And, um, you know, he reminds me of myself in many ways, but
0: definitely not, you know, in, in that form or fashion. Yeah. You know. You, know. Um, you worked on a variety of cases. Like, not you worked on a, a lot of cases, a great number of cases, but you yes. also worked on a wide spectrum of types of cases and crimes. Yes. Over your career and your experience, what was the most difficult part of your job?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the big, the difficult part of the job is being able to present to federal prosecutors logically and systematically your case and close it down, right? Close, put a lid on that case and the evidence and say, you must prosecute this. It's a difficult piece because a lot of times as an agent, You get lost. You know, you get lost amongst, hey, this is exciting. Look, they they make movies about the job I did. They make movies about it. And it's that good. It's that good of a job. Once you get to the point where you understand what the proofs have to look like and how they have to fit into that federal crime, and not saying fit in like, in other words, hey, we just manipulate them in, then you become a better agent and the job becomes less difficult. There's a lot of people that go through their career and never learn that. They just are always off on the shiny nickel chase. So I think the hardest part of the job for me and for the regular normal FBI agents that I was is just staying focused. Staying focused on the crime at hand and collecting the evidence and going wherever the evidence led you. Not fitting the evidence into the crime, mm. but taking the evidence. And sometimes there was many times, for as many cases as I made, there was many times that I would just say to a prosecutor, "Hey," and I, and we, I, was, I would talk to my prosecutors every day, sometimes five times a day. And I would say, look, I don't think we have enough. I don't think it makes sense. I don't think this guy did it. I don't think this is, we're going down the wrong path here. We need to be going down this way. So mm-hmm. that's the difficult job is kind of swallowing some pride, especially coming out of the military. You know, mm-hmm. I came out of the military. I was doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. Right? Stuff I'll never talk about. I mean, I think Sheila probably knows more than anybody else. My wife. Right? But stuff I'll never be able to talk about. So then you come into this and you're kind of like dealing with, you know, a, a brand new uh, wire fraud. Where the guy ripped off one hundred and ten thousand dollars, but you're you're actively pursuing it, you realize you don't have enough evidence for one hundred and ten thousand dollar fraud. That drives you crazy. Yeah, that's the difficult part. Right. But then you get to the point where you say, "Well, I'm only going to go where the evidence takes me," mm. and you'd be surprised at how many <clears throat> avenues that opens to the most important thing in the FBI: source development, human, what they call human intelligence, being able to sit with someone and say, "Look, you know, you've come, you've owned what you did." It's time to become a part of mm-hmm. Team America, and it's time to do the right thing, and there's time for you to do that. That's a tough conversation. But the word I used to tell them, the worst day is this day. When I have the handcuffs on you, this is the worst day of your life. But we're going to get better starting this afternoon when you start telling me, because you're going to feel like I'm your preacher, mm-hmm. and I'm your therapist, and <laughs> I'm everybody in between. And we're going to go with this, and we're going to take your information, and if it's good, we're going to work with it. So that's the
0: best part of the job what was the mix for you as far as work nationally versus internationally? So I would say probably different time periods of my
1: career. Uh, there were times when international was a hundred percent. Um, there was times when domestic was a hundred percent, you know? And so, uh, but I would say overall it's probably a 50, 50 mix. If I looked at my 20 years plus my years before plus my five or six years when it was kind of a hybrid situation, I'd say it's a 50, 50 mix, 50, 50 split. Um, you know, I was better versed at being able to, I had more contacts overseas than most people did, um, just because I was there. So I would be able to kind of say, Hey, I think I can run with this because I think we'll be able to get more effective and efficient information. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have to serve what they call MLATs. So they're like, uh, you know, basically they're, they're, requests for international banking accounts or div- I would be able to kind of cut through that and get that stuff quicker. And then we can kind of review and see what the deal was. That was based on context. So I would say the mix was probably definitely, I would say overall 50-50. 50-50. At any point, were you considered CIA? Julian asked that same question. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I mean, listen, you cross over, right? So sometimes you're not even sure what you're doing. Like, I mean, you're really? kind of like, well, that guy's oh, yeah. over there and that guy's there. I kind of know that guy, but I really don't know that guy. But I'm talking to both of them about, you know, the same issue. So you got to assume. And, and then basically being recruited out of the Army by the CIA and the Bureau at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, you start to – they don't they don't lose track of that. They know the people they talk to and they know the people that they were looking to kind of, um, you know, nurture and bring along in the hopes right. that they would come and, and you know, serve um, as a case officer somewhere you know so it's interesting it's an interesting dynamic but i i don't know but i'm sure it (laughs) happened
0: but i'm sure you worked with cia active cia that overseas or wherever absolutely absolutely yeah a a lifeline they're a lifeline and this was was this mostly this was mostly post 9-11 correct mostly post 9-11 i had I, i probably could think of at least one job Pre
1: nine eleven, that was totally different. It wasn't a terrorism based job. It was a was a believe it or not it was a um, like a complex financial fraud case. Mm. Um, and so we had some interactions there. Uh, public corruption will always kind of you'll see some things in public corruption where um, it it ties back to international you know accounts and right. or dealings. Right. Um, but yeah, after nine eleven, it became all about um, following the money. You know, trying to reduce. Uh, the number of those here that were looking to do harm and then trying to decentralize those there that were looking to do harm. So that became the focus. Mm. And like I said, we started talking so much more and communicating so much better. And I felt like at that time the leadership was better because they understood their mission. They had to actually sit back and do the job, not worry about, well, if I do this and I write up this and say – You know, oh, maybe I'll get promoted to this level that that wasn't happening as much.
0: Mm. Are you You familiar with this with the case, um, the FBI case regarding Huawei, the the Chinese tech company that installed their equipment on cell towers along the corridor? There's a highway in like middle America around like Missouri. Mm. Um, a long highway that's that's got cell towers all along it, and okay. uh, how, how I, I sent you the article, Austin. If you could pull it up, <clears throat> uh, this is yeah, this is it right here. What's the title of this called? Uh, yeah, yeah. FBI investigation determined Chinese-made Huawei um, equipment could disrupt nuclear arsenal. So basically, there's a there's a highway that goes along um, that corridor through like Missouri, Montana, which has cell towers that. These the companies, the telecom companies that have the cell towers, they're just worried about their bottom line. So they got the cheapest, most effective equipment, which was this Chinese company. And apparently they're using this their equipment that's installed on these cell towers to spy. And these cell towers happen to be extremely close to ICBM sites. So no, there's was this whole FBI familiar. investigation. I didn't know if you were familiar no, with it or not. No, definitely not. But it's it's a it's a crazy thing that even after the investigation, this happened like ten years ago, I believe, and the they still haven't finished taking all of the Chinese equipment off of the cell towers. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely amazing.
0: And so, could, I was going to say could that's you, where a
1: watchdog needs to be in place, <laughs> right? Never mind redacting documents. Yeah. You
0: know? Like, could you ever imagine something like this happening, the shoe being on the other foot? Could you like, could the, the CCP ever allow something like this happen where our equipment is on their cell tower spying on their shit? Would they think about that? Like, cause now like with, with things like this, you have to worry about the xenophobia and you know, all this right. stuff. Even talking about the uh, coronavirus, yep. call, you calling it the you, Wuhan yeah, flu yep, or. Yep. You gotta be careful.
1: No, no. <clears throat> cause they, those people, they kill people. They don't, right. they don't just, you know, send out a, a cease and desist. They kill you. Right. If they catch you, they kill you. Right. Period. Just the bottom line. You know, and there's so many, there's such crossover in that industry. And what I mean is like cell towers and communications, you know, there, there's such crossover between, um, you know, American-based companies or even like sole proprietorships that are, get contracts. They bid on veteran-based contracts and get them and then hire the lowest, bring right. the lowest bidder in right. without doing the backgrounds. That's a lot of the work that I do now is based on that. You know, it's based at kind of looking at, hey, we need to do firm backgrounds. We need to do extensive backgrounds on mm. what you're doing. I understand. You know, I understand that you. it's really exciting in the shiny nickel concept. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to make $100 million here. Yeah. But at what cost? Mm. Are you looking at who's doing the work? Right. All you're looking at is have insurance. So if some poor bastard falls off the tower and cracks his head, well, that's all
0: good. <clears throat> right. I mean, we got to do better than that. Their incentive is profit. But, I mean, this is an interesting topic, especially when you start talking about military contractors, too. And you talk about companies like uh, Lockheed Martin Mm -hmm. that are being contracted to do different things, like create weapons. And I just had a guy in here yesterday who uh, did this documentary called Phenomenon and... They talk to they talk about these like the all of the UFO things that have happened around yeah. through the history from like Roswell to to now. There's been a ton of them, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Bob Lazar. No, who uh, so Bob Lazar? I'm gonna fuck this story up. So all of my <laughs> followers who are like the UFO enthusiasts, I am too, but I'm gonna fuck it up either way because it's a very complicated story. Yeah, Bob Lazar was <clears throat> working for Alamos Labs um, created his own rocket propelled car for fun. He was like a genius in his early twenties and he got a job working at area 51 and they didn't tell him what it was for. And then eventually he got moved to another secret site called S four, which is off of area 51. And what he was working on was an advanced propulsion system that was something that he had never seen that nobody had ever seen. Apparently this is something they had been working on for decades. They had extremely high security. Nobody knew what was going on. Like there was so much compartmentalization. So he was working on propulsion. There was another team of guys that were working on metallurgy, another team of guys that were working on something else. There was just tons of scientists all working on their own things. None of them knew there was no communication to keep for secrecy, obviously for national security. Um, And he was working on this, uh, propulsion system that was essentially anti-gravity, something that we we couldn't even comprehend. Our scientists can't even comprehend today with the elements that we have on earth. Um, not something that basically burns fuel and shoots it out the back, right? So it's like a uh, some sort of technology that what we were discussing yesterday is there's evidence that this stuff does exist. No one's ever admitted it. It's still being kept a secret and for the freedom of information act for the purpose of that they're keeping it under the umbrella of private entities like Boeing and Lockheed Martin hmm. to protect it from FOIA so people can't go to the government with the freedom right. of information act cuz we right. don't, we don't have it we're the government we right. you know exactly. we, it's yeah. this is somebody else so there's the concern of these private entities like Boeing and and Lockheed Martin having this stuff and then when you're talking about what you were just talking about is doing the background research on who works for these companies. How do you know there's not Russian assets or Chinese people in, in these companies that are working for them too, spying on them? Like it's such a complicated topic. Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, you you think about
1: that's crazy to even think that that guy who's obviously a genius Mm -hmm. is working on something. And like you said, compartmentalized, so he doesn't know what the people around him are doing, but obviously they're, they got it from somewhere, right. and, you know. They all figured it out from somewhere, but right. nobody's going to talk to each other to say where or who or mm-hmm. chances were being. And most most of those companies, and I have some good buddies that work for those companies. You know, they're, they're retired military guys. They're guys that have seen you know a lot of combat action, and they know weapon systems, and they're able to speak to that in sales. Obviously, you know going forward, but I wonder. Yeah, and, the, and and that makes sense. I mean, so if you hit Boeing with a with a FOIA request, right? Yeah, seeing seeing twenty say, years, Yeah, fuck yeah, off. Yeah, or, <laughs> right. or you're gonna get a, you're gonna get a paper that's just everything's blacked out. Right. Okay. Here you go. Right. You know. So that's interesting. You know. I mean, it's it's. Mm. I think about that stuff. It's I very do. interesting. I do. I think about that stuff. And um, there was
0: attempts made to, to wipe his history. You know, he was in, uh, he was at MIT doing research and they did, and uh, they tried to wipe his history at MIT, tried to erase that. They uh, they even erased his birth certificate. They so all of his, buried it or erased it. Like, uh, they, they somehow, I don't know the guy, they may have just buried it. I don't know, but as, which is the same he, as erasing. He said, yeah, he said his birth certificate was fucking gone. <laughs> All of his friends, they couldn't fuck with him because he was kind of doxxed, right? Because he he put himself on the news or he got in a fight with a guy who was doing reporting. And he's like, I don't want to. He's like, they worked on it forever. And the guy who was uh, going to report on it, it's like, I got to go live with it today. And then he changed him. mind. was like, no, I don't want to do it. They got in like a wrestling match. The reporter won, went live with it. So now he was public. So he was kind of like his personal safety was protected. Yeah. But everyone around him got fucked with. Like he had like a bunch of his friends got audited. All kinds of crazy things. That <clears> happens, <throat> man. Yeah. That's crazy, but it, but it, but it
1: happens, you know, it definitely happens. So it's, it's a, it's an
0: interesting, uh, debate when you're talking about, I mean, it's a debate I had with, uh, with Andrew Bustamante too, is uh, talking about weighing national security versus, you know, just being open and honest about things like making the country and the, the military, making us accountable for telling For our people. Like, tell everyone the truth. Tell us. Let us know. For forward progress, too. Right. For technology reasons. You know? I mean, Mm -hmm. think about that. And his argument was, no one else does it. The Russians aren't doing it. The Chinese aren't doing it. If we do it, if we we let all of our citizens know what's really going on, we're just exposing ourselves to these other countries who have aspirations for themselves. Yep. Yep. Trying to take over the world. You know? And we're seeing it. You know, we're seeing it now. How How much attention does the FBI pay to... China and Russia. I know the CIA is a huge part of that, but how much attention does a lot. the FBI pay to it? A lot. Yeah, I mean there is there are
1: units and squads that are focused solely on those things, and it you know it could be as simple as at the local FBI level, it could be as simple as uh, you know Chinese or Russian organized crime, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically kind of a different ball game, but not really, not really, because um, you know their purpose is to disrupt normal business. And with violence and power and to take over in order to kind of move the cause forward. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the way I always looked at it. So it's hand in hand, but at a different level at the higher up level, it kind of, I'd like to think, although I'm not, I was never exposed to, um, you know, that particular world what counterintelligence world is, is different. It's, um, it's, it's a different type of agent, honestly, you know, in a lot of ways it's a weird agent, but it's a good agent, you know, it's a good agent that understands what they're after and it's long lasting, quote unquote cases, but it's not really, it's not true casework because there's really not been a case brought forward (laughs) in the public that anyone's seen that said, oh yeah, look, they took that guy to trial and, you know, he was convicted of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. It's more about kind of um, the traditional spy kind of role for the Bureau. I mean, if you talk to any agent, you know, from 40 or 50 years ago, and some of them are still obviously still alive, um, they were all guys and girls that were walking, well, guys, there were no girls at the time, but walking around the streets of New York following what they believed to be Russian spies or trying to perform counter, you know, counter surveillance on people they thought were following them. That was that was really the Bureau mm. in a nutshell for an extended period of time in the 70s and the, even in the, into the 80s until the wall fell, you know. So, I mean, if you think about that type of attention at the time, that was the thing to work. That was the agent that everyone said, man, you know, so John Smith, man, he works Russian, you know, counterintelligence. Whoa, he's working spies. You know, that was a big thing, mm-hmm. right? Nowadays, uh, nowadays, I won't say that, but there was a time leading up to nine eleven, where where um, the broken toys would kind of get put on those squads, would get put on the counterintelligence squad. What do you mean broken toys? So agents that had issues, right? Agents that, Hey, you know, uh, there's something going on at the house, and we're not sure, and he's uh. not focused. Or, oh my God, that that guy fucked up. You know, he did something stupid. wasn't criminal. Doesn't deserve to be fired, but send him over to FCI, you know, foreign counterintelligence. You know what I mean? It's a place for him to rest, to get his head back. Think about that. Think about that. Right. So, you can't tell me that there were clues and messages that came in from chatter and from even not being. Even not in a cooperative or collaborative relationship with the agency, there was stuff that came in that might have got lost in the mix. Might have got lost and might have caused some of the things that happened, i.e. nine eleven. And and you know near and dear to my heart because I lost, you know, my 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 current wife lost her husband in right. the towers. Right. So it 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 hits home for me when I think back about how hard many of us were working throughout the different areas of the Bureau and how it was always kind of a joke. Well, Hey, he got put on, you know, counterterrorism or he got put on counterintelligence. Well, yeah, he's struggling at home. He needs to be home for the kid by three o'clock. Not saying everybody, but in my experience that happened. So I often kind of wonder, um, we had to rebuild that program from the ground up. When nine eleven happened, we took all our best people and put them on those squads. Wow!
0: I had a guy in here who was a firefighter in uh, in the NYPD on the day of nine eleven, and he yeah. was under. There was a hotel right next to one of the towers. I forget the name of the hotel. I think it was a. Uh, I think it was Marriott, right? Marriott. Yep. So he was underneath the Marriott in the parking lot when the tower collapsed on top of it. Oh my god. Like, and yeah. he was walking me through everything from the sounds to everyone around him. He held on to a um what are those big fucking thing? big round concrete pilings yeah, called? Pi- yeah, the piling. Yeah. He was holding He's onto piling a piling there. as yep. the thing collapsed. Yep. And he said it sounded just like he sent he explained it. He said, it sounded like I was on the tarmac at JFK with two 747s on each side of me with their backs facing my ears, going full blast. I believe it. And um you know, I brought up to him that I, you know, I, there's a lot of shit that's screwy about 9-11. Like, I don't think we're being told the whole truth about it. He didn't want to have any part of that conversation. He's like, a lot of people say that he's like, anyone that says that he's like, he's like, he, he can't even participate in that mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Obviously he has a lot of PTSD. from, from that day. But there's a lot of people, you know, I know it's a sensitive subject to a people that were close to people on that day or were there that day. But I get the sense that we're not being told everything about that day.
1: I mean, I'm sure there's things that haven't been shared for whatever reason. I mean, you know, look back at the, the whole 60 page document, that about the Saudis, a, about the the flight schools, right, right. And then look at what's going on now, where the the families, the 9/11 families, have been attempting to receive documentation, unredacted documents from the bureau with regards to the terrorists, the 19 terrorists attachment to Saudi, in order to to finish a lawsuit. You know, to finish what I think is a reasonable and mm-hmm. and winnable lawsuit. So the bureau has kind of dragged their feet on that and finally were ordered to turn over and still hasn't turned over everything Mm -hmm. that they have. Now I can tell you from my experience, I, I have no doubt what happened because I was there. Right. Um, you know, just, so just like this fireman, I, I, you know, I, I suffered PTS from, from life before, from my military time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then it came, you know, 2001 didn't help. And then it came raging back 2010. I lost my mom and my best friend, my best friend to a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. What? And my mom of, Alzheimer's in the same month. So that kind of brought it raging back. But I can tell you for a fact, I witnessed number two hit the tower. So I came right over my head, basically on a boat. I was on a boat in the middle of New New York Harbor. So, um, and you know, was on the ground when the building fell. So I heard, I I heard those rumbles. I heard those sounds. I experienced those smells. I experienced the choking, um, covered with soot on my, I still have the vest that I kind of keep uh, in the corner of my office to remind me of what can happen, you know, if we're not careful. Um, obviously I have a reminder every day, just looking at Sheila and her kids and her two Mm -hmm. older boys. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I, I know that, you know, I I know people talk about it and and wonder about whether or not it was an inside job, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. Man, that's a, if that's an inside
0: job, that's the greatest military operation in the history of the world. Right. You know, it makes Pearl Harbor look weak. There's a. There's a do- – I was just going to bring it up. Uh, there's a documentary called 9-11, The New Pearl Harbor hmm. that goes really, really deep into it. And, again, there's fucking people who just have this idea in their mind that this was an inside job, and I'm going to find every peg that fits into the right hole to say this was an inside job. Yeah. But I watched this documentary, and there's lots of fucking crazy things in there. Like they interviewed – the flight instructors from those flight schools. And they said the motherfucker that was flying the plane that flew into the Pentagon, that guy couldn't even, that guy could not even pass basic flight training. Mm -hmm. There's no, he said that there's no way like this guy couldn't fly a Cessna to save his life. There's no way he could fly this fucking jetliner at, I think it was 60 feet above the ground. At their speed, it was flying yeah. when it hit the Pentagon. Yeah. There's no fucking way. Yeah. It would take an extremely skilled pilot with years of experience to, to do that. This is just one example. Well, he bounced it in. Did he? <laughs> he bounced it in. So that's another thing. Like, yeah. the, There's what? There's one video clip. Of yeah, there's the that surveillance cam from from, from a the, gate, a parking gate, right? When that, that was it. That's supposed to be like the most surveilled building in America, like the Pentagon. They're supposed to be like ninety to one hundred cameras on that building, and the, the FBI I think is holding on to a ton of the tapes, and they won't release. I wouldn't them. be surprised.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at that at all. Um, you could see the path clearly because the Air Force Memorial is now there. It's the three, you know, it's the kind of the oh, jet really? symbolism mm. of the jet. That's the path came in. Interesting story about that. It's the only area of the Pentagon that was reinforced. With concrete back in during World War Two time, the so area ran, where the plane hit. They, that oh, that's, area. A, that's
0: another part of the documentary that yes. they just did. They said yes. that they had just finished. I don't know how recently, but hey, just no, they had just like, redoing that part of it. Yeah, and th- not only that, but they they lined the walls, the interior walls, with like fireproof Kevlar or something, mm. something insane. Interesting. I mean, the original reason that they, they
1: stopped reinforcing back during World War II is because they, they wanted to, they, they had to convert the economy into the war effort, right? So the concrete became right. valuable. Right. Um, so they just stopped. Right. Right. And then, you know, I don't know when it was done again or when it picked up. I don't even know what it was. But after the fact, they mm. did it, obviously, to rebuild. I mean, there was a ton of people that you know, that that died there. There's a ton of people that have stories about it. You know, that mm, right. were all military. So that's another thing. They're not they're not gonna expose their story. They're military. They're kind of they're not allowed to. You know, and and the military's weird with that. Yeah. Did you see the thing recently with Trump
0: at the live, you know, the live golf? Yeah. The at his club, at his club, right up in uh, Basking Ridge at yeah. the, the Trump national. Yeah. yeah and there's yep. tons of protesters uh, yep. for the Saudi because the Saudi 9-11, uh, there were this, there, I think there were 9-11 There's a lot of families. Yeah. Families. My, my wife's friends, some of her friends. And they, yeah. In, yeah. And they interviewed Trump and he said, he goes, we haven't gotten to the bottom of 9-11. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it. You got to, uh, you got to play it. Do you, I think you, do you have the video? This is fucking, I mean, this is just something, like, I don't know why Donald Trump, I mean, obviously he kissed the Saudis' ass when he was president, right? He was like... Doesn't everybody? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Is Biden kissing their ass? Uh, I don't think he knows what he's doing. No, he, he definitely doesn't know what the yeah. fuck he's doing. Yeah. Scroll through it. I but he would like, if he could. Yeah. If he could think about it, he would. This is like, yeah, right when he starts talking, go to it. Well, just listen to the this. That T-shot's awful, by it's the way. It's so weird. <laughs> the steel wasn't enough. He said this when asked about the 9-11 family's protest.
1: Well, nobody's gotten to the bottom of 9-11, unfortunately, and they should have, as to the maniacs that did that horrible thing to our city, to our country, to the world. So nobody's really been there.
0: Guys, stop getting ripped off by your car insurance company and check this out. So, like, what does that? does That? that mean?
1: Nobody's gotten to the bottom of it. It's pretty clear. I mean, you know, it's pretty. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's saying it. He's exposed to it, right? I'm is not he exposed to is it? Is he exposed I think to it? So. How the presidents? Do you think the presidents? Like, Hell yeah,
0: get everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, look at you know, if you if you listen to to Bustamante talk about how the president is briefed, and kind of how the president is is really the client of the briefer, right? Whether it be oh, CIA, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? He's yeah. saying like some some presidents are like don't want to hear about this this or this this is what i want on the front page regardless of whether or not there's threats that are much more uh realistic so that comment is fucking crazy by the way he cheats at golf too you knew that right? yeah
0: julian yeah. told me yeah. Julian told me the story yeah, it's an interesting story <laughs> there's yeah. three things i do i cheat on in life my wife my business and golf <laughs>
1: he actually watched this drive so i met a caddy that was caddying uh for him when tom brady and he were playing at his club there right and he said basically brady said i guess brady tells a story to a caddy who i was playing who was my caddy that day and he said finally brady went over to the caddy that was caddying for trump and said listen you kick one more fucking ball (laughs) fucking crack your head isn't that great? So he like, oh, said. He so said amazing. everything. He said either he propped it up on a perfect lie, moved it, n- never said anything, just kicked it out. You know, said, "Oh, here's yours. Drop another ball."
0: Is that cheating? Like, though yeah. I do that all the time. <laughs> I mean, I guess not when you're playing for money. I guess are you allowed to like prop it up on the grass? If no, it's you're not. No, come oh, on, fuck, I Danny, come that. on. But you are my member guest partner now next year. So, oh hell yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. There's uh, dude caddies. I feel like caddies have the craziest stories. Oh,
1: crazy. Because they get, you what know, you, you get, to, somebody said one time, if you want to know everything about a person, play around to golf with
0: them. Right.
1: You'll figure everything out. Right. You know what? That's so true. Everything about them. The reason I m- take a lot of clients out on the golf course, because I can immediately figure out wait a minute, do I really, do I want to be putting myself on the line for, or, hey, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. It's true. You think Bustamante plays golf? No, absolutely <laughs> not. No, no. Too analytical about it. You'd be like, well, the angle that comes out on a short iron is different. He'd Damn. close the golf course. Like, what I mean close, not close, but
0: he'd actually, the the, the other, the caddy would be going, I want to work for you. Yeah, I want to give you, you know, <clears throat> he's the best. Man, that would be crazy, right? To yeah. have like some sort of, like they need to, I don't know if there's ever been it, but I, I could see a TV show revolving around like, the story. You know, they had the show like below deck where they have the yeah. guys who work on those yachts and yes, millionaire telling yachts telling
1: stories about. They should have something like that
0: for golf caddies. That would be Especially awesome. in DC and like oh. that area.
1: Well, that one guy, America's Caddy, I can't think of his on ESPN, but he may, he basically is doing like, he's marketing for the big events. You know, he's going, let, let's say like, uh, when PGA Championship was down in Kiwa Island and, um, in Charleston, he's walking around like telling stories about Kiwa and Charleston and those things. That's one thing. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a market for, caddies to the famous you know yes, and saying hey yes. you want to you hear about something kevin Costner did on the golf course and that really is i truly do believe the golf course is a place where you learn a lot about people um and i figured i think it was like i think it was i think a woman is the one who came out with that she said before i date a guy i bring him out on the golf course because she's a good golfer oh she goes no i find shit. out everything i need to know <laughs> for hours whether or not i want to continue the relationship i was like damn that that makes a lot of
0: sense it really does and i started doing it and it's worked it's worked for me, you know. I uh I just watched Tin Cup for the first time last oh, week. Great movie for the first time. What a great good movie. fucking movie! I great can't believe movie. it took me so long to see oh. it. <clears throat> Here's another one. Um,
1: watch. It's hard to find, but it's called Dead Solid Perfect, and it's with Randy Quaid and I think Susan Sarandon. It's an old movie. It's based Dead on a Dead Solid Perfect. Dead Solid Perfect. It's it's um it's based on a book by Look this up. What's it? Dan, the guy who wrote North Dallas Forty, the same author who's passed since. There it is.
0: That's all perfect. Find uh, like a picture of the cover of it. Yep, there it is. 1998. Yep. Ooh. Great book.
1: Great movie. Great movie. Fabulous. You would love it. True golf movie. Um, you know, just just absolutely outstanding. <clears> oh, I fucking think love golf. Man.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna watch that tonight. You actually. gotta watch it. You'll love it. There's something about golf. Like it's uh it's unlike so many sports because it's just like you're competing mentally against yourself. I can relate golf more than anything to doing this Yeah, because golf's all about not thinking. It's all about getting out of your head and like finding that, that flow where you're not thinking, you're just doing it. That's it. Cause there's, it happens with social media. Like there's so many things on, on TikTok and Instagram that tell you these, give you all these golf tips and tricks. My algorithm is just all it tells me is about all I see is golf. Yeah. On all my social I, same media. Same thing. YouTube. I got it too. Yeah. And I'm always thinking about this shit. Like, oh, I got to turn my wrist that way. I got to change my grip that way. And as soon as I do that, I'm like all over the place. Screwed up. Yeah. But as soon as I forget about it and don't think about anything, I'm just hitting the ball. It's that much better. It's, it's, such a, it's a fascinating game.
1: Well, they talk about like the best coaches, is this guy, Dr. Bob Rutella, who's coached a lot of different pros. And basically his thing is just sit back behind the ball. That's the think box, right? Once you approach, once you cross that line, you don't think about anything else. Matter of fact, he talks about kind of um, counting down from nine, like nine, eight. That's the only thought. And you, you got, I mean, I've done it a few times. You hit the ball just as solid as you could possibly hit it mm. because it just removes all the thoughts of, okay, got to keep that right heel planted. All right, let's swing the right. club back. Let's make a turn. Let's get the club underneath my chin. Mm-hmm. and that just winds up destroying
0: your, your right game, you know? on top and, of that too when you hit a bad shot it's hard to re- rebound from it because absolutely. it's like you're on a fucking slippery slope definitely you can go just down yeah i mean you could stop hitting the ball completely you can miss on missing
1: the ball you mm-hmm. know so uh but retell is really good bob retell is fantastic
0: i'm gonna I'm watch that to i'm gonna watch that movie tonight yeah. yep you'd love that you'll love um it. dude can you try to crank that air again it's hot as fuck in here something our ac's been fucking up the last few weeks um I want to go back to nine eleven. So yep. there was a forgotten case about a plane that crashed a couple months after yeah, September, early 11. November. Yeah, early November. Can you oh, tell the story about that about that case?
1: Yeah. So I mean, we get, you know, we get called out. Hey, listen, there was a plane crash, and I think it was in Brooklyn. Um, I think it was it came out of JFK or LaGuardia. I can't remember, but it was going to the Dominican. It was loaded. It was, um, I think, a seven sixty seven or seven fifty seven loaded with passengers um on takeoff the tail wing fell off detached from the aircraft wow just detached, and the plane wound up in a fiery ball going through some residential areas and killing some people on the ground in addition to killing everyone on board obviously so uh, we get called out and um you know we our evidence response team in New Jersey was was second to none. So we would go to all the major disasters and collect, uh, you know, do our thing. Like a, a terrible thing. So I got morgue duty, which is horrible because you're identifying people and trying to figure out. Morgue know, duty? Yeah. You're basically trying to trying to identify, you know, who they are, who, next to kin, uh, doing the DNA. And, you know, there, there's a lot of burnt pieces and those things. It's terrible. It's terrible. The sights and smells are things that never go away. You know, in your deepest dark moments, when I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, it's not about, you know, oh my God, I'm gonna miss my flight. It's about, oh man, you know, something that just strikes me. And it could be from anywhere in my life, mm. any portion of it. You know, and it's something I chose to do. So I do it and they need dignity as much as anybody else. Their families need answers. But at the same time, it always struck me, and we always we always thought about it. How the hell did a tail, you know, wing fall off of an aircraft? Right. How does that happen? So if you see the actual um I think, I can't remember what the finding actually was, but it was something along the lines of um, the jet that took off before this aircraft was a 747, and the prop blast from that in the air was still existing and it knocked a tail. I mean, just like stuff you're like, what? Like there's a, there's a waiting, like we all know we fly, right? The Mm -hmm. jet takes off. They, they usually come out and they, they make the turn as it's going down the runway, Mm -hmm. but they're not sitting behind it when it lights up its engines and starts the path. So they tried to convince whoever to, to, to make that. What is it? The, um, well, the National Safety Bureau or whatever the hell NC. And so I don't even know the organization that does the investigation. I used to remember like the NICC, yeah, whatever, that does the actual investigations of major catastrophes transportation-wise. They'll go out to Amtrak sites, they'll go out to plane crashes, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, yeah, our finding is that, uh, you know, the prop blast from that 747 in front of this aircraft knocked it off. That was your finding? Loosened
0: it, yeah. How and long so, did you investigate that case?
1: I mean, we just, we went out and did the recovery and collected what we could and provided it to um, – that organization, uh, you know, and then walked away from it, you know, and we, I know a lot of us were like, Holy shit. You know, it's, it's two months after nine 11. Um, everybody's on edge anyway and this happened and nobody's taking a look to whether or not this is associated or affiliated. Mm-hmm. We never got an opportunity to look at cameras around the airport that evening or, you know, anything just kind of mm-hmm. went away. Of course the, the aircraft was in such major, you know, destruction, we couldn't put it back together like we did TW800, um, which is the one that I still believe was was shot down, you know? I still believe that. that was that the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania? No, the one that w- was crashed out over the ocean with all the high school kids that were heading to France for, like, uh, a graduation trip off the coast of, of Long Island. It was, like, June 20, July 25th, 96-ish. Uh-huh. Went down, killed all the people, and there was a... When we put it back together, there was a hole in the side. Really, like, uh, and what the what the the finding was was that the center gas tank on one of the wings blew up. So we actually interviewed. I think we interviewed every every licensed and and certified 747 pilot that we could find. I think it was every. I think we exhausted the list of interviews. And to a man, all of them said that shit could never happen. You can't. It can't blow up. Really? Yeah, because there's some type of device. There's some type of safety device that locks out. That locks out that gas tank you know, until it's ready for use, until they're mm. ready to get directly into, you know, the system. So that's another thing. And there was a, remember the journalist Pierre Salinger? He mm. he's he had a report that there was witnesses to um, some type of ship that launched a missile, and it probably accidentally, but it hit, the, it was a, you know, surface-to-air, which is a heat seeker. And so the, the witnesses said, yeah, they saw, basically saw, Something launched, and then a flame, like, kind of a following flame trace from the gas tank, and then the thing exploded in the air. So everybody said, well, that was the gas that was lit on fire that was now going down to the ocean that looked like a missile going up. So how how far off the coast was this? 13 miles off the coast of, what was it, Mariches, Long Island? Um, 13 yeah. miles. Yep, yep. So there was a lot of guys and girls that I knew that actually were out on that recovery. And they were like devastated by the stuff they were finding. They were able to put that plane back together. They were actually pulling seats. I mean, I don't, you know, I
0: don't want to talk about it, but there was some horrific stuff that happened on that recovery. So the whole plane didn't necessarily burst into flames and burn to a crisp. There were still. Fell in two parts. Oh, my God. So you we know, probably believe that there's survivors that survived the initial.
1: And then, you know, obviously, who knows what the hell happens. I don't, you know, I've skydived before in the military. So I know. Um, <clears throat> You're prepared for that. You're trained. So if you're falling from 30,000 feet with a mask on, you're prepared. You, you understand what it feels like. You understand the body position that needs to be in order right. to not break your neck or anything else that goes with that. You understand how to pull, how to react.
0: Is there a protocol to surviving a plane crash, like without a parachute or being falling out of a plane? Like, is there any kind of. No. There there's because a people have survived. Yeah. Falling fucking out of a plane. Yep. There's yeah. a, I just read a story yesterday about Teddy Kennedy. Teddy Kennedy. Yeah, remember I that didn't plane crash in, in Nantucket. He had
1: the he had the brace around his neck. He, he survived. Oh shit. Yeah. I wasn't even aware of that one. Yeah. yeah. I
0: heard I heard a story. I read a story the other day about a girl in the 50s, a young girl. A plane broke in half in midair and she free fell tens of thousands of feet strapped to her chair. Landed in the woods and survived, got out and survived in the jungle for like a week by herself. Oh my God. Like literally had to like cauterize her own wounds somehow. How old was she? I think she was a young girl. Maybe you can find this, uh, a young girl in the fifties, forties or fifties that survived a plane crash. I want to say it was in the, over the Amazon, over the jungle somewhere. Kids nowadays can't survive the fact that their internet goes down for five minutes this girl survived I know right With 10,000 <laughs> tens of thousands of feet fall and then she survived in the Amazon it's amazing that's that amazing the Human, the human body is hard to destroy yeah it's hard to destroy unless it's you know hit at the exact angle it's not supposed
1: to be hit at plane crashes most plane crashes the, death, the cause of death is going to be broken neck really yeah because the whiplash is so severe think about it how you many from, How many people do you
0: recover from a plane crash every, like that? I mean everybody you can recover everybody, everybody. yeah yeah everybody wow and we were accountable for everybody that day because I know sometimes when it's in the ocean sharks are involved in it 100% yeah is this the story this is it holy cow what is it what does the headline say 200. how I survived is that no that, that can't be it because this girl was in the 50s would she still be alive
1: let's go down. see let's see what it says go down what does the
0: sub headline say yeah, Christmas She was 71. over the Peruvian rainforest with her mother when the plane was hit by... Oh, yeah, that's it. The plane was struck by lightning. She survived a two-mile freefall and found herself alone in the jungle at age 17. More than 40 years later, she recalls what happened. Holy, Holy shit. shit, man. Mm. Oh, my God. That's insane. How unbelievable insane. is that? Mm-hmm. It was not her day. Yeah, she wasn't supposed to go. No. Yeah.
1: No. Worse would have been if it said. Then years later, she was, you know, strangled and eaten by an anaconda. Oh my god, "Ah, man! I don't want to go there. Terrible, terrible. But yeah, crazy. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, yeah. You'll you'll find you'll
0: find everybody in the ocean. It's got definitely some different. And so issues at the conclusion of. Both of those cases, the the plane that crashed in the or in Brooklyn and the plane that crashed thirteen miles off the coast, you guys found that there was no foul play or no conspiracy. That was the that was the official finding. I don't know, you know, I,
1: I never believed either one of them. We never believed either one of them. No, no, too close in proximity for the November one for the Brooklyn plane crash. I mean, you know, shit going on all over the place. How
0: we had no handle on it. How detached are you from the final finding, and how how do you? Once we that. give it up to another agency, we kind of lose.
1: Unless there's a criminal prosecution, mm. we're removed. Mm. You know, um, I wish I could think of the organization. I, I'm just drawing a blank on it that does um, the National, like the Safety Bureau. It, it, they come out and they actually come right to the scene and take over the investigation. Um, you'd know it if, 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 mm. if, but, but yeah, I mean, we just become, you know, secondary to the, to, to the, the cause you know mm-hmm. we're, we're collecting evidence and, and waiting mm-hmm. to see if there's anything in our minds or anybody else's mind that says yeah foul play mm. witness statements you know pilots the whole deal and then when we don't find
0: that we kind of just give it up can you talk a little bit about some of the interrogation tactics and psychological tricks that you would use during sure. interrogation and some of these quote-unquote games that you could play with people to crack cases
1: yeah I mean my most powerful tool was something I learned probably oh god it had to be in my childhood and you know I remember my dad kind of talking and he would say hey the best thing you could do is let people talk and they'll tell you everything you want to hear and he he used to have this technique two techniques minimization is is really powerful but we'll talk about that but mirroring is one of the most powerful techniques you could use. So in other words, where you are sitting right now? If I was interrogating you Mm -hmm. subconsciously, you know, you're not understanding, but I'm going to put my hands like you have, and we're going to start to relate. And it's weird. And the, the, the way I figured out my dad, one time he showed the example and it was amazing. So we pulled the top of the street. We, we, I grew up in the Valesburg section in Newark, New Jersey. So primarily an Italian section, um, great spot, uh, very busy, long streets at the top of the street was the main road that we would have to pull out onto every day when he drove me and my brother to school. And so we would pull to the top and, you know, there was no traffic light. Um, it was busy and nobody would let you out, you know, nobody at all. And there was a port at one point there was cars stop. One car was going to actually go, you know, make a right on the street. The other car was going to go straight and they kind of stopped for each other for a second. Mm -hmm. And the passenger In the car that was kind of slowing down where we need it to get across had, it was the wife of the guy, had her arm out the the open window. So my dad quickly opened his window and put his arm out. And he said, watch this. And the woman looked and she just went to her husband, stop. And they, they waved us to go. And he said, that is mirroring. That's what you do. You just mirror what people do and they will go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt. So I took that into interrogation, never having really learned true interrogation from my dad but I would take the mirroring effect into interrogation and I would begin the process of talking to anyone with just a silent period and just kind of mimic not to mock but just mimic what they were doing kind of mm-hmm. ape them for lack of better term so if they were doing you know if they were leaning back in their chair I would just lean back in my chair you know whatever if they were like you know I would do that over the course of time then usually it would you know hey um what are you know what are we here for be like, what are we here for <laughs> whatever and and invariably you would get a you would get a bond it's a weird dynamic subconscious it's a weird dynamic and then that kind of causes some discussion to start which then gives you the ability to kind of work in the minimization technique now there's all other things that people talk about torture techniques and different things along the, and there's times and places and i'm not going to lie to you that that some of that stuff needs to be utilized in right. order to get information quicker, in order to get information that's necessary. Um, but I'm not talking about, you know, everyday techniques. The minimization piece is incredible. And I'll explain it to like this. Um, let's say there's a, uh, a, you know, a child molester or a child rapist or something that you have to talk to. Disgusting. The worst crime you could possibly think about, right? The goal is to not embarrass and make that person feel you know, take them off their, their pedestal because they come in like they're on a pedestal. Like, yeah, I could do this. Fuck you. You know, I'm not going to mm-hmm. tell you about it. The worst thing you can do is 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 kind of jump them and judge them in their head. Now, you want to kill them is what you want to do, but you're basically not going to judge them because it's not going to get the open communication going. So you're mirroring a little bit, you're talking, and then you kind of can throw something in like, hey, you, you might have a picture of the little girl or you might have a picture of the little boy and you, you might want to just like look at it and say, eh, I don't know if I can control myself either you know under your breath something along mm. those lines and then you kind of see like you know now this is TV would make it look like it's 30 seconds this can be over the course of a couple hours you're kind of wearing each other down they're trying to wear you down you're gonna fight the fight you're gonna mm-hmm. stay in it because it has to be done um and at the end of it you know you're basically hey man I don't I don't blame you I don't blame you I mean little girl walking around dressed like that I don't know I'd be honest with you I don't know if I can control myself either you want to you know Mm. Not easy to do, but you're kind of minimizing that activity mm. with, with a public official. Same thing. Like, hey, you didn't know. Dude, you didn't know. I mean, you didn't know. You took you bartered the you bartered the utilities authority. Your daughter needed new windows in the house. You know, you told the guy, hey man, you know, if you put windows in my daughter's house for nothing, I'll give you the contract at the Utilities Authority. I love my kids too. I would have done the same thing. You know, I mean, yeah. what was I going to do? I mean, yeah, I can't afford windows. I'm an FBI agent. Right. How am I going to afford that? Yeah, of course I got to do that. And I was all right. That's all you need. That's all you need is the opening there yeah. right now. On the terrorist side of the house, it's a different story. You know, because overseas, true criminal masterminds, and I've dealt with a couple of serial bank robbers, you know, people who even on this side, but mostly the stuff I did, you know, in and around the world to kind of discover information or to get explanations or to develop areas that we needed to create as an objective, both in the military and in the Bureau, had to be focused, it had to be violent, and it had to be on point. And their belief system is different. They have no problem dying for their cause. Right. Right, so you have to understand that. And basically you have to work it through a system that, kind of deals
0: or kind of places violence with violence right you can only, they don't understand anything else you can only respond to that kind of violence with the same kind of violence they don't
1: care about their family like we do <clears throat> the biggest you know if, if you're if i'm going after somebody and i threaten your kids in this country you got a problem you know what i mean that's it they're going to give you what you need to have they're gonna you know they're right. gonna do it Hey, or bring in, like, even that guy I was telling you about. Like, hey, I want to put your daughter on the stand, and she's going to talk about how she got free windows for this. And you almost have him. And then he went to trial. And he took put his daughter on the stand, and she lied on the stand. She got charged. And I just said, told you. Told you, you idiot. Told you. I gave you an opportunity. Right? So, but in the other world of, you know, savage terrorists, savage killers, they could give a shit less about anything but their cause.
0: Mm-hmm. They're happy to die for it. They're happy
1: to die for it. You know, like Patton once said, "The so object,
0: what do you do? How do you how do you deal with them psychologically if they don't long, give a shit about anything
1: except long, for God?" Long process. It's just a trying to bond with that type of person is the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. Trying to find a commonality, my it, belief in something. It, you know? The only
0: thing I could see is literally the worst torture, like playing the Barney song on the loudest volume for <laughs> 10 days straight or a week straight. Like how else? I don't know.
1: Restricted restricted personal space is powerful. Powerful. Think about it. You ever have an MRI? You ever lay in an MRI tube for I think, 20 so, minutes? I think I have. Yeah. You start thinking about it. Oh,
0: I'm good. Just adjust the frame. I just want to get more this We're good. Sorry.
1: You start thinking about it. You start like if you're laying in that tube and you start going, Holy shit, this thing's only like two inches from my nose. Oh my God, I can't move my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Holy God. You start thinking about it, it'll get you. Mm-hmm. I've had it happen. Like, the little, holy crap, I gotta get out of this, right? You take a box that's four by four feet by four feet or four feet by to start and then make it four feet by three feet and just keep restricting that body space gonna go mm-hmm. blasting a little bit of music throwing a little water in the box <clears throat> you know making it cold and uncomfortable and unpleasant you're gonna actually get a conversation going based on that and mm-hmm. once you have once you get to the point where it's what do you need from me what what's gonna make this up what do you need from me you're you got it at that point you got it right once you're telling me once you're putting me in control and saying, you know, what do you need from me? Now, it might go another three weeks. Right. But I know I got you. You got to be patient. I know I got you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm going to wear it out, and I'm going to find stuff. Plus, we also know, we know things that they don't think we know. That the whole thing about um, deepest, darkest secret. If I knew your deepest, darkest secret, you're going to fucking tell me what I need to know. Guaranteed. Hmm. Guaranteed. Because I'm going to expose it to your, you know, your spiritual leader. Mm. or I'm going to expose it to somebody that's important to you. Now I have to know who's important to you. You know, for most of us, it would be family, right? If if my dad knew X or if my wife knew Y or my kids knew this, not the case.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The case is, does my spiritual mentor and leader know? Right. Does this take me out of the opportunity to be something bigger in the afterlife, mm-hmm. which is all the shit that,
0: you know cause of of a lot of that stuff the biggest problem with some of these a lot of people have more dilemmas with things like torture or the death penalty um but i think most people if you detach them from the public square just have like a one-on-one conversation with them like i think by and large most people would agree that the death penalty is justified for a certain group of people and tortured is, is also justified for a certain group of people. The problem is it, it gets, we get it wrong all the time. The death penalty, there's so many people that are exonerated every year off of death row because DNA evidence exonerates them. I just had a guy in here a couple of weeks ago who wa, was charged. He was 16 years old when he was charged with the murder of a girl, rape and murder of a girl. And the cops, basically, they didn't want to do the work to find out who really did it when they had DNA evidence that didn't match him, they somehow fucking got the case closed by sending this kid to prison. He went to prison for sixteen years. And eventually they arrested the guy that actually committed the rape and murder. My God. And they got his DNA and he this guy had to fight forever to get a lawyer My God. through the um the Innocence Project. Yep. And this guy almost didn't get out. But once they found once they arrested the real guy and matched the DNA, like he fought fi- sixteen years of his life. It's so a huge penalty to pay that, for something that you didn't do and nobody's listening to. Right. About. So that's the, that's my problem with the death penalty is that we fucking put the wrong people on there. And then you, it's the, the combination of the justice system, the judicial system there. They want to get as many people as possible to take the plea and they want to, they want to, there's obviously it costs money to try right, to go through a trial. They want you to take the plea. They want to send you in. It's everything costs money. We got to like we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast. We got to meet our quota, whatever it may be that mixed with these things like the death penalty and torture. That's where it goes wrong. So agreed. What in your opinion, what do you think, Could be done to fix the judicial system. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, and and basically, um, the
1: thought process for a prosecutor, whether appointed or elected, whether federal level, state level, county level, town, you know, local level, Mm -hmm. is the the thought process is always, let's get the plea because we don't want to take the chance to be beat at trial, right? And that's that serves two different purposes, right? So. If you have a U.S. attorney at the federal level that has aspirations to be the president or the governor, they don't want to lose a trial. So if they bring 100 cases that they're sure are going to get convicted at trial, they're they're 100%. However, what you don't see is the 7,000 cases that were not brought to trial that were plea bargained or dropped. So if you think you have enough evidence to go forward with a criminal charge, my point has always been go forward. Go forward and let a jury or their peers decide whether or not they're guilty or innocent. That's a much more structured environment in my case, Mm -hmm. in in my thoughts. right? Mm -hmm. So I think part of that would solve kind of the judicial corruption if there is corruption. And take that at any level. It doesn't matter, right? But the other side of it is really taking the time to be – I guess, collaborative about investigation. So in other words, cooperate amongst ourselves to discover whether or not we have enough. It's not just about, let me check one in my box so that I get this for promotion. Same thing. Mm. I want to make sure that I'm doing everything that I should be doing to uncover each of the areas that we've looked at or tried to to provide evidence that goes one way or another, and that's the choice of a jury to do that, or it's the choice of the individual. Hey, here's what we have against you. You make a decision whether you want to plea or not. Mm. And we have such great tools. Like you mentioned, we have DNA. We have the ability to do that immediately. We have the ability to do many things immediately. We have facial recognition. We have all these different things. We have camera systems all over the country. We have, you know, easy paths that can put people in the right spot at the right time. It's different than when it was back when that person was wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. It's getting better every year. So that's that's one side of it with, you know, judicial system, I think the other side of the judicial system, which bothers me is, is kind of the good old boy network. Mm-hmm. It's still in place. Okay. You know what? We're going to, we're going to nominate. If you're a good boy and you do everything that you're supposed to do, um, and you're a good U- United States attorney and you're a good assistant United States attorney, we'll, we'll put you, we'll make you a federal judge and you can ride off into the sunset for the next 50 years. Right. You know, making up your basically creating your docket and deciding if you want to work one day a week or five days right. a week or not at all. And we're still going to pay you the money that we're going to pay you, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of, and you see it, you see what these appointments, you know, these appointments, what you see, what's what's always kind of um, highly covered in the press is the Supreme Court appointments, right? Mm -hmm. What's not covered is all these federal judges that are appointed by different administrations and why they're appointed. Who's... Who's kind of the watchdog on that stuff? Right. Who's doing the background checks on that stuff and figuring where they lie? Nobody. Because all they want to do, is, does it meet my party's agenda Right. to put this person in place? Guess what? That person's the person that's sitting in, in judgment, obviously by the name, sitting in judgment of those people that come before he or she. And they can influence a trial greatly. Mm-hmm. I have had examples of that in my career where a judge has influenced a trial by throwing out portions of an indictment or not allowing evidence in or allowing evidence in unfairly so the defense is scrambling it all it happens it's it's i don't know what the short answer is for it but i do think that if there was a closer watch at you know who's appointing who what the qualifications are and how we go about maybe term limiting some of those folks right how we, we you know it's like anything else like you go to you go you go to a new client And they say, "I really like you, but I want to give you just six months to prove whether or not you could do this." We don't do that
0: because the problem is, if you get rid of it, you're also getting rid of human motivation. People, that's the humans are motivated to get to that role, to evolve better, to get to right, to get to that role, to better their career, to make more money, to do better for their families, right? But shouldn't there have
1: to be some type of peer evaluation, something, something that says, "Hey, listen, you know, we we're happy with." these four judges and i'm talking amongst peers we do it in the army you can peer each other out of different schools you can peer each other out of the army Mm. it's saying hey man you know you're not pulling your weight and you don't believe it so we're going to tell you
0: once we're going to tell you twice and then we're going to boot you the fuck out right if you don't do your job and it happens are you familiar with the ross with ross albrecht i'm not he was the kid who founded a, uh, a website called silk road Forget what year it was. Maybe you can find out the the year that he was um, sent to prison. But Silk Road was basically it was it was a uh, a dark web kind of an eBay of the dark web where people could buy drugs. Now that you say that, I think I think yes, I think I did discuss that maybe or talk, found out about it through mm-hmm. um, Julian. Yeah, yeah, and um, basically what ended up happening, whether it was fake, whether it was real or not, um. 2011. Okay, um, whether it was real or not, basically somebody, a couple of people he knew, ratted him out or or tried to destroy his operation. And these people were informants, or they were or they were undercover. And he, I, I'm also I'm fucking this up a little bit. <laughs> he allegedly put out a a hit or tried to hire somebody to kill these guys, and they used that to send him to prison. Now this kid got, he never actually bought or sold drugs. He basically just set up this marketplace on the dark web where people could use cryptocurrency to buy shit like drugs, you know, weird stuff. There was yeah. no, there was no h- human trafficking. There was no sex trafficking. There was nothing like that. Yep. It was only tr- like drugs and shit that wasn't legal. And he, he got, he essentially got, I think it was double El Chapo sentence. So, so did he,
1: when he made these, when he tried to set up these people to be killed, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's going to. Did, did, was there ever an overt like action to have that happen? I don't or was know. It just I, talk. I,
0: I don't know if there was any actual it's lazy fucking police work. I don't know if there was period. any actual evidence. I don't know what. I, I. It's lazy police work. Yeah. It's it's. So the point is, if even if you just say okay. This guy was selling. If say he was selling drugs, hypothetically, say Fine, they, but figure it out, right? If he was, and say he did, what is it? What is, I don't know what the term is called when you try to hire a hitman. They they you get. Uh. You get caught trying to hire somebody to do a hit. Yeah, like whatever that is. Murder for hire. Murder for for hire. Right. When you try to hire somebody to commit a hit, even if you didn't, the murder did the murder did not happen. Is that worth two life sentences? No. Yeah. There has to be a transaction. There has
1: to Mm -hmm. be some type of this for that. Mm -hmm. A quid pro quo. Right. In order for that to 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 hold, you know, if I said if I said to you right now, hey, go go fucking kill, you know, go kill Julian. If I pay you and say, hey, you're going to go do this, and you make an overt right. action, you right. go to his home, oh, we've got a problem. Right. But if I just say, hey, go kill him, and I'm, there's no exchange, it's, it's quid pro quo. It's exactly what you know, using an official, basically asking for an official action right. Right, in return for some right. value. right. That's a crime. Even if it doesn't happen, that's a crime. If I exchange, you know, like basic is, is the hooker, right? Mm-hmm. So you have all these things that go on. Okay, you know, we got to get you handing the money before I can arrest the John. Mm-hmm. Can't just say, hey, give me, you know, give me hey, whatever, fuck me, and, and, you know, right. you don't have to pay.
0: That, that's not a crime. I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is it's just like, it's this guy, Ross Albert, is one of the most overt examples oh, of, it's terrible. of trying to make an example out of somebody because of the government had no control over whatever it was.
1: Right. I, I mean, and no understanding, mm-hmm. more importantly, because if you had an investigator that can go out that was capable of looking at this whole picture and and do some interviews, go out and talk to the guy. Mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with going out to, to, you know, we don't often do it, but there's nothing wrong with it. I'm going to talk to everybody around them though. I'm going to find out exactly, Hey, did you feel like you had to, or he was forcing you or he was selling? Have you had, have, find out the transactions, mm-hmm. find out what actually happened. Look in his account. Is there any money in there? Mm-hmm. Did anything happen? Or he was just trying to, you know, what was it? Was it marketplace that he happened to stumble upon? Cause he's probably a really smart dude. Yeah. And, it kind of went out of control. And now in the meantime, he's serving a shitload of time.
0: Right. And he was also a young kid. He was in his He's 20s. a young
1: kid. So he's, his life is different. It's over, you know? I mean, so that, that comes back to the, I, I chalk that up to just lazy and unconcerned investigative work. And I go back to the, the other thing that bothers me, we have, but think about the George Floyd. I'm often asked what I would have done were I a patrolman in the world of George Floyd. Hmm. I'm often asked about that. Really? So I'm not, I never was, but I understand I've had situations overseas in the military where I had those situations. How would I, how would you have handled it differently? You want to know how I would have handled it differently? I would have went over and said, Hey man, I know you're having a bad day. Like you look like shit, you know, and knowing that if he really did something down the line, he would have to pay for it. I'd say, would you just get in the backseat, get in the backseat of the car, close the door and lock it. And that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. You're done. And then the fact that no other police officer, no other police officer said, hey, get you know, you need to get your knee off his neck. It doesn't look like he's breathing. Nobody had the, the, the moral turpitude to say, get off him. What the fuck are you doing? No one. And in the meantime, he died. It caused the issues it caused. And the cop and everybody else's lives are different. Yeah. That police department will never be, never be the same. It'll never be the same police department. And it's a police department that's needed. The area has gone out of control, right? So that, that's, that's what we're missing. We're kind of missing on, on both fronts, like training, training and understanding and common sense is missing in law enforcement. Why? Because when I, if you went down to any police academy tomorrow and I showed you and you just had a chance to observe the training, you know what you're going to see? The basically it's going to be this obsession with the guy or girl who's physically tough. Right. Good with their hands. Right. Look at him, greatest uh, you know, fighter, ground fighter. Wow, what a great boxer. Man, they can shoot well. Holy cow, look at them with the baton. Honestly, what really should be happening, and if I had the opportunity to be the crime czar, hopefully someday I will, maybe you never know. If I had the opportunity to be the crime training about how to talk to people, mm-hmm. how to understand their motivation, how to be a true community policer. Which is missing in law enforcement. The respect goes to the guy who can whack you over the fucking head with a baton, not the guy who can sit there and say, Hey, listen, you know, you, I understand what you're going through. This is a problem. Now you got to be safe. You got to protect yourself, but that shouldn't be the first thing. That shouldn't be. The, if I go to, if I got to go to my gun right out of the box, we got a problem. If I got to mm. kneel on your throat right out of the box while you're handcuffed, we got a problem.
0: Not but only, I, should, I think the exhaust, the exhaust pipe of that car was right over his
1: face. Right too. over his face. And no, no one had the balls to just say, get off him, dude. We'll talk about it later. I can't tell you how many times in, as a young agent or a young military officer, we, my peers and I would, would butt heads. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You wrote up a, you know, you wrote up a report that is inaccurate because in the bureau, we don't, we don't tape record it. We don't tape anything. There's no cameras or anything. I go out and interview about a situation. I'm not supposed to put opinion in there. I'm supposed to be facts of what you said. It's your statement. I'm writing it. I'm memorializing what you told me. And I would have often, I would have fights and and arguments. Even when I was a boss, I would look and say, this is, this is opinion. You're, you're taking what he said and you're turning it into what you wanted to say. You know, you have to be to the point on that or, or, Or in the military, you know, out and and talking to people or talking to town's leader or whatever and be like, what are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? We don't do it that way. We listen to what they have to say. We make them collaborative partners in what we're doing. Nobody does that anymore. Police academies don't even teach it.
0: Mm, Really?
1: Don't even teach it. They teach interview and interrogation, which is great. That should be part of it. Social, you know, being able to, to socialize with the community that you serve
0: yeah, that's something period. that's something that's that's mandatory for survival in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. You have to be able to integrate with the civilians. You better. Cuz they'll sell you out in 2 seconds because you need them. You don't have them, you're done.
1: And if you pay them, they get murdered. So you better be careful. Right. You better be careful. What yeah. you do? You're dealing with life and death. So are we on the streets here. You know there's an old there's an old thing that I, I love. I, I love the show NYPD Blue. I think Andy Sipowicz is the best character in the history of TV. <laughs> he just is, you know. And there's a, there's a session in there where he's teaching his son, who later gets murdered, for doing exactly what he taught him to do, and he blames himself for the rest of his life. But there's a, there's a, a section at the end of one of the episodes where he's teaching his son about surveillance and about knowing your beat. And he says, son, you got to know your beat. He said, there's four things you need to know. People, places, the things they do, and the times they do them. And he goes on to tell this story about how one night on Christmas Eve, he saw a couple of characters go into this toy warehouse. Two seconds later, they came out with a gun and they were walking down and he says, and I was just about ready to go up and pull my gun. And I recognized it as the owner of the toy factory. And I said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm bringing a toy gun home for my kid. It's Christmas Eve. He said, had I not known what was going on in my area? What a shot and killed him on Christmas Eve. He said, so that's the important piece. We're missing that in law enforcement. We're missing that in training, understanding because there's, you know, there's this, there's this great value placed on being able to, you know, knock your side, wrestle you to the ground by, oh, he, he took this guy out over the car. Well, you know what? That's going to backfire on you someday. And it has in many ways. Be a community policer. Listen to people who have done it before. I'd rather be able to talk to someone and figure it out. And I've done it in many places, in many places around the world. And my life, here I am, here I sit, I survived it. Mm. I'm a survivor. Be a survivor. Going
0: back to what we were talking about. uh, And I'm
1: passionate about that, so I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm too. I'm too. About
0: the, like, even going back to using the judicial system as an example of human nature. Humans have most humans have a deep desire to get better and to advance their lives and advance their careers and grow and evolve. I mean, just like technology keeps evolving, we want to make new iPhones, new, bigger, and better things. Um, it's The problem is the people that want to become policemen with the amount of money they make, If you're somebody who's like yourself, you're passionate about this. You believe in this. You obviously are an ambitious individual. Do you think a lot of the people that are police officers now are the same type of people? They're ambitious. They like, are they going to end up being a policeman? I don't know how much an average police officer makes, but it can't be much more than 50 grand a year.
1: Depending on the area. I mean, obviously, you know, some of some towns up in New Jersey, they're starting at a hundred. Oh, really? Yeah. But I I get what you're saying, though. I get what you're saying. I I think most of the young officers that I know or I've mentored or had the opportunity to be around are driven individuals who want to make a difference, want to do the right thing, want to make a difference, want to be a leader in their community, want to be respected, want to have an honorable job, Mm. want to be able to look to both sides and say, okay, I'm respecting the community. I've done what I'm supposed to be doing. My my problem is when that is not respected within the ranks of that young police officer's world. It can get rocked quickly. You ass kiss. What are you doing? Always trying to work these second shifts. What are you screwing me over? I got a second job. I need that shift. That stuff starts to happen. Mm. And then it's the stories. You know, the stories are all the same. Oh, this dude, you know, I stopped him. He started to mouth off, so I locked him up. You know, I put him in the back right. of the car. To, right. Who gives, that's the easy thing to do, you know? So I think you don't go into law enforcement to make money. You know, you you truly don't because it's not there. The money is not, but it's, but it's a consistent, honorable, steady job when done properly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's making a difference. It's serving something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. Truly the thing that I fell in love with, with the military, with West Point, the military and the FBI, always serving something bigger than myself. Right. Not just being about me. You know, now at where I'm at now, I use that training and experience and I use the credibility that I earned over time in order to do more for myself, for my family, for the still for the people to have an impact on the people I work with, the mm-hmm. clients I work with, right? But along the way, I never lose focus on that. I mm-hmm. think that's what's missing. The respect for that, the respect for, hey, look at this young person who wants to do more. Mm-hmm. That's why I love being around mentoring service academy kids or ROTC kids that mm-hmm. want to go in. Because I see the passion. I see the passion as a servant leader. I see them wanting to do more. Mm-hmm. Not just for them. You know, not just the easy, hey, it's going to be, this is going to be awesome for me. On a easy, easy, you know, basic, easy peasy. Here's my reward. Immediate. Right. Immediate gratification. Right. It's not the
0: case in, in servant leadership. So I, we're missing a little of that. I don't think it's the majority of police officers that are, fall into this category. No, definitely not. Some of the greatest people I know have served and served honorably. Same. You know? Um, but ego has to... Do you think ego becomes a big part of it? Because I think when... or do, Let me ask you. Do you think in the George Floyd case where the man's... I forget the guy's name is kneeling on George Floyd's yeah. neck. And uh, the, all those people are filming and yelling at him to get off his neck. And do you think his ego sort of got in the way there where all these people are screaming at me, trying to tell me what to do? I'm the one in charge. I'm not going to yeah. do what these people are telling me to do. Yeah.
1: I think that's a part of it. And once you get to that point where it's combative and it's contentious, you kind of lose, you, you lose focus on what's actually happening. So, you know, yes, that guy a thousand times, what he would do. And he would never do that obviously because it turned out in a, awful way. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, yeah, I think he's contentious with the people around him and he's going to show that I'm in charge, nobody's taking advantage of this police department. We're making this community better. <laughs> exactly the opposite right. of what happened. Right. Treating a person like a person no matter who they are. Does it, would it piss you the hell off that this guy's walking around drugged up and is a menace in right. the town? Of course it would. But there's always a different day. There's there's people like that if they're still doing what they're doing you know any criminal if they're still doing what they're doing eventually it's going to catch up might not be that day and you might not be able to be the judge jury and executioner mm-hmm. but at some point you're going to be able to say hey you know that's what happens it it doesn't it never you know that cycle never turns out with a great result for the person that continues the cycle right which is why i always love to i always love to flip people because i got them back on the the right track in my mind 500 i think I think I counted I think I had 500 plus arrests and convictions in my career I only had one guy not shake my hand at the end and say thank you for being professional thank you for being who you were I appreciate it wow the one guy that didn't shake my hand is the guy we talked about tonight utilities chairman look you know and his wife told me on the way out of the courthouse I hope you die a horrendous death and I looked at her and said is there any other type <laughs> shark attack what do you want i mean what do you want you know so and then he came back after his jail term he came back to the office had another opportunity i was friendly i was like hey i hope you're doing okay i hope you feel all right fuck you so he told me five years later i tried to shake his hand he didn't want it it. you're an asshole Mm -hmm. okay still bothers me by the way does it really hell yeah
0: (laughs) hell yeah after everything you worked on hell yeah still bothers me i wanted that handshake How much of your time was spent on white collar crimes or like corruption or like, like bank fraud, that kind of stuff.
1: Periods of my career were, were specified cases that I kind of felt that I, I earned the response when I was working cases, I always earned the chance to work on the best cases, you know, and, and many times they came from my sources. They came from people who would provide information, you know, it's, I pride myself on nurturing my network, whether it be a criminal network um, that has information, whether it be, um, you know, friends or classmates from West Point or classmates from the FBI Academy. I pride myself on that. So um, when they would come, uh, you know, sometimes they were taken from me and given to other agents. But many times I would plead to let me run with this. You know, I'm the person who brought it to you. I need to stay involved. And to this day, I still do that. If, you know, if I feel like I owe to the to the person or to the cause to, to move forward, I'll stay with it. So really, when I was working cases, which was for about eight years of my career, you know, we're actually working cases, I always, you know, I always felt the more complex the case, the better and more intrigued and more um, motivated and motivated is a bad word, but but more jazzed. <laughs> Mm. about the case. And in that world, it's just about, you know, it's about creating opportunities like anything else. Hey, I think, and once you know, once it goes off in your head, sometimes it takes a week, sometimes it takes a year for it to go off in your head. This is wrong. There's something really wrong and criminal about this. Then it's just a matter of every single chance and opportunity to talk to people, to look at evidence, to subpoena evidence, to wiretap, you know, to search warrant. Every bit of that is incorporated into your your daily like being. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I gotta go in. I I'm going in. I'm going in. Go in. Oh, I thought it, oh my God, it did work out. Look at this. Holy cow, pull somebody's trash off their curb, which we're allowed to do, by the way, as federal law <laughs> enforcement. Look through it. Oh my God, here it is. Here's the document. I knew he had a bank account at Lakeland. Son of a bitch. That's where he's hiding the money. That kind of stuff. So, you know, I I kind of mixed and matched the kind of cases that I generated and nurtured through my network and then made a decision to either, Hey, you know what? Bob Smith's so much better at work in this kind of case. I'll stay with him if he wants me to, but that's the guy that should be on this or, Oh my God, this is a serial bank robber. Okay. We got to put John on that. You know, John knows exactly what he's doing on that. Mm -hmm. And that carried over into my boss time, you know, as a boss, like managing, I could be like, Oh, there's nobody else I want, but that dude, that dude needs to do this case. He knows what he's doing. Because I knew two things. I knew he would give it his hundred percent effort. And if the evidence didn't follow where it went, he would tell me, mm. Nope, we don't have it. And I knew when he told me that, I knew we didn't have it. And I think I had that reputation with bosses. If Diorio came in and told you, Nope, you know, it's not gonna work, you knew it wasn't gonna work. So all different types. Boy collar was a public corruption was was a portion of my career that was wonderful. You know, I don't mean that like wonderful, but but it was intriguing. Most yeah.
0: difficult case to make. One of my uh, one of my most popular guests on this show is a guy who whose career was made through bank fraud, running from the FBI. I
1: saw that. It was awesome. You watched that oh, one? Oh, it was great.
0: Yeah. What's his name? Um, fascinating guy, Matthew Cox. Matthew Cox. He's amazing. Yeah. Ran from uh, the FBI, played cat and mouse. Like a catch me if you can type yeah. type. Frank Abnell. Yeah. Yep. The original. Um, I wanted to ask you earlier, how how much of a concern is it if at all working in the fbi or any of these agencies for that matter of you guys are surveilling lots of people some innocent some guilty whatever it may be people that you whether they're informants they're in your network of people trying to solve a problem are you ever worried about or do you know that you are also being surveilled by somebody else? Like are, is the FBI keeping tabs on you? Because I know that when it comes to a position that involves high secrecy in government, that it's important that the people working there are, in the right state of mind mentally, especially with their family life too. Going back to that story I was telling you about, the guy Bob Lazar. Yes. They were monitoring, they were tapping his phone lines and he knew about it. He gave them permission to do that. And they found out at one point because they were tapping his lines that his wife was cheating on him. So they had, they, oh, that's when they fired him because they said, this guy's going to be unstable. We yep. have to get rid of him. Yep,
1: yep. Um, it's definitely always in the back of your mind, um, you know, whether or not you're jeopardizing anyone else in your world or in your life that's important to you um, by doing the job that you do. So you, you're you very, Most. most people in that world, most of the really top-notch agents and prosecutors are very self-aware and situationally aware of what they're creating by doing the job they're doing, right? And those who aren't, you know, we've seen examples of that, break my heart. The federal judge in Newark, who the guy came to her, the house and uh, dressed as a FedEx guy and oh, yeah. murdered her son and maimed her husband. When was this? This was not long ago. This had something to do with Epstein, didn't it? It did have something to do with Epstein. Yeah, this was probably what four years ago, maybe. Yeah, not even. I remember this. I'm not even. So, so I think that goes through your head. You definitely do think, especially I did. I did a few undercover gigs that I often wondered. Was it where was I backstopped enough? And, and my my first undercover get was with with the military. So oh, in really? conjunction with law enforcement. So you often think about that. But I think it's a matter of just being on top of your game. So I knew I knew who the threats if I knew the potential threats that I was taking on in order to complete this case. And I made it very clear to the people that I was investigating through either through to themselves or through their attorney that it would not be tolerated. You know, threats or even messages would not be tolerated. Um, and, you know, we, we slammed some people after the fact when they actually, we actually had one dude, mortgage fraudster, that winds up that, you know, he probably knows, Matthew Cox probably knows, who, who tattooed the initials of the federal prosecutor with like one of those circles with the line through it on his arm and came to sentencing like that. So the judge was like, I see that and I'm going to consider it in a sentencing. I was going to give you eight years in jail. You now have 20. Hmm. And then we monitor the phone calls. That gives us the opportunity to monitor because it's a threat. So we'd monitor those prison phone calls, you know, for the next 20 hmm. years, somebody's listening to that shit. So you're always prepared and aware I think if you let your guard down with regards to who's looking and who's watching, it's not to be paranoid, but there's there's a form of paranoia that's actually not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the bureau and the, and the agency especially looks for that. They look for, you know, kind of controlled paranoia. So they want you to kind of be looking, you know, what's going on around I'm you, vigilant, absolutely. And that's that's a that's a symptom of of PTSD is the hypervigilance. Right. Which is scary. Right. You know, to the point where you could be sitting come back from a combat situation or come back from a mission and you're sitting in a Starbucks in Red Bank, New Jersey, and you hear, you know, a car tire screech, you can lose it like that. So think about how many young soldiers who don't have the where, you know, wherewithal or the support to be able to figure that out. So they go to the VA who just loads them up. with Klonopin. Here you go. Take as much of this shit as you want. What the, what's the number? 22 a day? 22 a day. And I think that's light. I think that's light. Honestly.
0: I think that's really light. It's crazy that the government can't find out, can't figure out something to do with the people that come back from deployment or come back from jobs. Like you Isn't it crazy? Alternative. I, there's alternative methods that they
1: won't even allow into the system. You know, like your transcendental meditation, those kinds of things that I'm a firm believer in that mm-hmm. can help. You know, or just the fact like we, we do have some nonprofits that are out there doing great work, mm-hmm. great work. Giving cause, giving reason, giving purpose. Purpose is an important thing. It you is. You know, it I mean, is. it is an important thing. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself really in a bad, in a dark place. If you don't have purpose day to day, it doesn't, I, I don't mean like purpose, you know, I'm making money, I'm taking care of a kid. But something to do, something that's meaningful to you. You know, and that's kind of like, I think that's part of the problem. They come back from something that no one understands. Nobody understands what it's like to be in a combat deployment. They can't talk about it. No PTSD survivor talks details. Mm -mm. They don't. They can't. You need to. You need to fucking scrub that, man. You need to figure it out. The only guys, Mm -hmm. if I, perfect example, probably 10 years ago, I'm sitting in a a Panera. Sitting in a Panera, eating it, and this, this older gentleman comes up and goes how you doing no idea who it was how you doing huh? you're a sufferer aren't you i look up he's got like a like a you know one of the veteran caps on and he says i know i could see it really and we became friends we still talk we still talk monthly out of and a panera he noticed it oh, and i've got the ability like i consider myself somebody who can move past things yeah. i was trapped there without that guy i don't i probably don't Honestly, I probably don't have, and then you lose purpose over the course. We all, listen, we all lose purpose along along the way. Like, shit, I thought I really want to do that, but I really want to do this. But it's not for a, it, when it's an extended period of time, you know, there's something behind it. So my thought is always like, involve, stay involved, you know, stay with something. The giving, all you're doing with medicine and prescriptions is prolonging, the, the yeah. cycle.
0: You're compressing the cycle. You need you to know? have people. They need to have purpose. The purpose, purpose. is the biggest thing. The biggest b- thing. The drugs are just band aids, right? The the drugs like the the marijuana, the psychedelics, and the the MDMA. I mean, all that stuff. I'm sure is great, but you got to have a purpose in life. You have to, and especially after doing something that demanding, that insane yeah it's got to be coming back to the to everyday comfortable life in america that's it's right. not even close and on top of that to compound that all of these k- people who are being deployed into com- combat or who used to be deployed into combat in like iraq or wherever it may be they're in their late teens early 20s so they ha- they're not even developed human beings yet not even close you're, you're close. they say your brain i think scientists now say your brain doesn't start developing until you stop developing until you're like mid to early 30s maybe yeah and when you severely introduce this kind of trauma to somebody who's still a developing human being you are going to alter their trajectory of development drastically drastically it's the same thing I, I so true it's 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 different but the same i often talk about uh like i compare Compare it to NFL and NBA players when mm-hmm. they're young, when they're in their teens and their twenties, and they get all of a sudden they leave high school and they're surrounded by sports agents, lawyers. They're getting millions of dollars and they're getting told how to spend it, how to manage it, how to do this, how to talk to this person, how to talk to the news. These people are just out of high school. Like when I was out of yep. high school, I was a complete idiot. I probably didn't, I didn't Really start learning about life until maybe my mid twenties, late twenties, and like f- through failure, fucking up friendships, exactly. all kind, losing money, yep. f- through yep. trial and error. Yep. Into my mid thirties, I maybe have like a fraction of what it means to be a well-rounded human being now. And okay. I didn't have any of this crazy, any of this stuff. When, when you're that young, when you're in your twenties, early twenties, and you all of a sudden have millions of dollars, yeah, to it it the world, it changes your friendships, it changes your relationship with your family. It changes everything. Nothing's real. Nothing is real. and no, when, no relationship is real. And what happens to you when all of a sudden in your mid-30s or your early 30s, it all vanishes? And how often does that happen?
1: All the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. You know, and it's just, even, and that is such a good point. And I mean, you know, things to come with my partnership, you know, that we have a plan to kind of help that out. But we'll, I can't share it now, but you'll be the first to know. Well, well, um, well,
0: tell us uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now uh, since you've come back, since you've been, you know, left the FBI. What, you, what have you been doing since then? Yeah, definitely. So the, the, the funnest thing that I'm
1: doing is Jersey Mike's Restaurants. So we own two of those. And so it's doing great. And uh, working shoulder to shoulder with your kids is a pretty cool thing and a pretty cool opportunity. But um, what we've since done is a company that I, you know, my company is called J3 Global and it's a security consulting firm but I've partnered with some amazing individuals who have similar type companies and together, um, you know, we have really taken peace of mind kind of consulting to another level. So we have actually been able to find, and it's all word of mouth, this stuff. This is what's amazing to me. It's all word of mouth. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, if you need something, um, you know, kind of to reestablish, your sense of situational awareness or reestablish or maybe even establish your sense of a security culture, whether it be in your life, whether it be with the company, we focus on high net worth, which all due respect, you know, there's some tough people. Obviously they've done a lot to get where they are. So we want to kind of help them protect where they're at, help them realize that there's a need in this world more so than anything else, and then provide an assessment of their life. And then give them recommendations of priorities to take care of that and be side-by-side. It's almost like a hand-holding experience. But to me, the impact that we're having on these individuals takes me right back to my first platoon in the Army, where I had a true impact to teach and to show and to be side-by-side and to guide them through difficult portions of their life, the things maybe they never recognized or never thought would happen. And, and my, what I tell them all the time, and this this struck home with me, and it's easy for me to kind of display and to explain. When they say to me, what's the first thing, when you, when you talk security in this day and age, people say, well, their, their immediate response is, you know, I'd love to talk to you, and you know, definitely we have some background checks that we want you to do, but nothing's really happened. So I don't know if I should spend money, or I don't know if I should engage you, Things happen. We're we're kind of okay, and I'm like, let me tell you a little story. Back in 2018, I was in the best shape of my life, and it, I decided because so because I was, you know, reading a couple books about you know being a cardiologist. I decided that I was a cardiologist, and that I could take myself off my Lipitor because I didn't need it anymore. I was in great shape. I had no chest pain and no issue. I was working hard, whatever. Well, in December of 2019, I was seated in my office. And I felt a sense of doom, which is what they talk about, which is definitely something that's intensified since my, my roles in different situations along the way. And I knew something was really wrong. I Got some pain in my heart, in my chest, got pain in my arm. I got pain in my jaw. And immediately I said, I got to go. I got to go to the doctors. I got to go to the hospital, mm-hmm. started to take myself to the hospital, realized I couldn't make it called nine one one. They rushed me to the emergency room where I went right into a cath lab my doctor, who I told him, hey, I'm, I'm going to take myself off a of Lipitor that day. I didn't tell him before that. I told him. He was shocked. He's like, what's the matter? You're on your drug. I said, I got a problem. I haven't didn't, didn't taken my Lipitor in like nine months because nothing's going to happen. Right. He said, well, here we are. He said, you're 95% blocked in your Widowmaker, in your LAD. He said, I'm going in right now. I'm going to put stents in. And he didn't. He saved my life on the spot. And for that, I'm forever grateful. He's wow. the greatest doctor in the world.
0: I so took, you had I take blockage,
1: blockage, massive blockage. I had about, I had about two days to live. It was that close to closing down. Right. So wow. that's what I told clients who say, well, I don't really want it. I'm your Lipitor, dude. Mm. I'm the one that's going to protect you. Take the Lipitor now because when something happens, it's too late. I didn't have a heart attack. I got lucky. So I didn't have damn I have no damage to my heart. I'm better for it. I've got a better mindset. I'm grateful to be alive. And now I'm going to take that and I'm going to transfer it into helping you, giving you peace of mind. If it's a medical issue, it's one thing. But when it's an issue that you can prevent because you have me Mm. consulting and you have my partners consulting, and the stuff we can do, our capabilities is beyond anything anybody can do. I put it up against anybody in the world. So all you big companies that are looking at have 700 employees, we have three. (laughs) And we'll knock your socks off. So that's kind of what I'm doing. And you could tell the passion is there, man, oh, yeah. you know, and, and the more passionate you are about something and believe, and you know, this, the more, more things start coming in, you know, and it's kind of like just a wonderful feeling. So that's what I'm doing right now. In addition to, I, I make a, Fabulous number 13 at Jersey Mike's. If you want to
0: come see us. <laughs> but it's in South Jersey. Man. So, yeah. well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, man. I, I really my pleasure. How can people get in touch with you or contact you if they need to? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll give out my,
1: my email address, which is the best way. So it's, uh, JDORIO, D-I-O-R-I-O at J3-Global.com. Um, please, you know, send me a note. Um, website's being redone, um, because we're getting a lot more action. My LinkedIn. Uh, has everything you need to know. So please direct message me or whatever. Love to help you out. You heard it, folks. Thanks again, Jim. I really appreciate it, man. My honor.